Hello, everybody, and welcome to Ness Dorma. This is your chat about 80s and 90s football. I am Lee, and with me for this episode is is our friend and yours as well, Mr. Gary Naylor. Good evening. Oh, he- hello, Gary. Hello. <laughs> and making his, I think it's his, it's his season three, his series three debut, late but very classy, like Clant- Cantona in 92-93. Devastating impact. It's Mike Gibbons. Hello, Mike. Hi, we. Is this your missed- debut? I can't remember. Uh, this season, yeah, I missed pre-season. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, overdid it, ate too much, drank too much, and uh, yeah, needed to get fit. Well, I, I think you're being a little uh, harsh there, Lee, because I think Mike is probably a couple of episodes ago when he he did all the notes, and I basically sort of read out Mike's notes. So <laughs> if he wasn't there in voice, hey, he was there Gary, in word. Don't be letting people behind the curtain this to our production process. <laughs> this is this is this is no good. Um so anyway, speaking of a production process, I think you know the format by now because I think we are finally settling on a proper format after a couple of years. Uh, we're gonna have a look at an underrated player. We'll have a right long chat about an old footy topic and this week we're gonna take a good look at Euro eighty eight and also consider our journeyman of the week. But before we get into that, however, we pause to give thanks to all of you lovely people out there who've stepped up to the turnstile and put some funds into the Nesson Dorma collection bucket. I'd like to throw out a huge thanks to the latest people who've gone to patreon.com slash Nesson Dorma and decided to support us. Those people are David Howarth, Alex Slattery, Gary. That's not you, is it, Gary? You're not paying for you. You don't believe in the product so much you're paying for it yourself, do you? <laughs> No, I'm afraid it's not me. Yeah. So your thank- money where your mouth is. <laughs> so Dan Butler. So I got Dave, David Howard, Alex Slattery, Gary, Dan Butler, Torgrim, Svensson, and Eamon. Well, because of what you've done, David, Alex, Dan, Gary, Eamon, and Torgrim, you, along with all the all the other lovely patrons, have this episode right now in your shell like ears because you get it a few days before everybody else. So you've got that little special privilege. You also have it free of ad- advertising inserts, and you also have the fuzzy feeling of helping to support a completely independent pod done by us lot. So thank you all very much. We do have some Patreon special stuff lined up in November to keep your eyes and your ears peeled. Can you peel your ears to listen to things? I don't know. It's not important right now. Let's move on. So you let's get ourselves... Pricked, st- you prick your ears. You prick do prick your ears, your peel ears, your eyes and prick peel your, your ears. Eyes. Yes, very good one. So... Let's go straight into our first section, which is this week. Another nomination for the underrated Hall of Fame, which is this week a midfielder from back in the day, none other than Mr. Paul Bracewell. A nomination you were very keen on, Gary, I believe. Well, Bracewell was a... In some ways, he's an old-fashioned footballer, but in other ways... Um, he's, he, he was very new, and uh, maybe we'll get into that a little bit with uh, with some of the detail uh, to follow. But obviously, Bracewell is a is a hero to all Evertonians, and not just because he he played. It was the the way he played, and there's rather a, a kind of sad uh, story about Bracewell at Everton. Even though he went on to have a uh, a career uh, after Everton, it was never quite the same. Uh, and I think that says quite a lot about how footballers and football were was treated in the mid 80s but i think we'll get into that mm. with more detail as well but i'm i'm absolutely delighted that one of the sort of uh less less well sung uh heroes of the great everton side of the mid 80s is getting a nod here at Nesson Dorma. and that's why we have this feature so anyway let, some little little bit of background about paul brace before we talk in some more detail he was born 
actually born over the water from Liverpool. That was in Heswell. For those of you who are not geographically familiar with the Wirral Peninsula, he was, bo- he was born over the River Mersey in Heswell on the Wirral. His family moved to Shropshire when he was still a kid, which may explain why it was at Stoke. It was Stoke City that spotted his talent and not Tranmere or one of the big two over on Merseyside. Sorry, any Tranmere fans that I've just referred to the other two as the big two, but I think it's it's the truth. So off he went to Stoke. He established himself at Stoke in the first team for a couple of years and then went to Sunderland for a year. But as Gary's already mentioned, his career kind of blossomed after signing for Everton in 1984, improving that side and forming a partnership with Peter Reid. And there was obviously both. Well, I suppose, what kind of partnership was it? Well, the the kind of... um... Joe Royal referred to them as, I think, the first Dogs of War. There was the 90s version of the Dogs of War there. But they were they were an all-action, dynamic central midfield pairing. It wasn't kind of one holding and one playing forward. They both sort of occupied the middle of the, of the pitch. And they were both uh, box-to-box players. But they complemented each other perfectly. They seemed to have a kind of sixth sense of when one was was holding and the other could go and 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 vice versa but both did something you know i've always felt is absolutely critical in the game and i was thinking about this on saturday with uh with tom davies and andres gomez playing for everton because they, they did a, a similar thing and it's what i always look for in a midfielder they would they would both, and, and Bracewell, I think, was particularly good at this. They would both pick the ball up kind of off the defenders or in transition, as they now call it, sort of 10 yards inside their own half. And then they would carry the ball 10 yards into the opposition half and then critically make a forward pass. And if you have midfielders who are driving like that, able to to pick up loose balls, able to, to make quick transitions, and then critically not look to knock the ball sideways or not look at a, an overlapping fullback, but carry the ball that gives you the time for your attackers to start making those curving runs into the channels or or be able, uh, particularly in those days in the 80s, to kind of knock a centre-half slightly off their step with a bit of uh, contact. Um, then it opened up so many possibilities. And uh, Bracewell was not a goal scorer um, neither was was Reed and in some ways it's impossible to think of them as separate entities because they so often played together but they he was in some ways a little bit like a kind of Makaleli figure or or a Kante at, at Leicester figure who would be buzzing around wherever the ball was picking that ball up and within a matter of seconds the initiative was back in your hands and I don't think he got enough kind of praise or recognition for that but there was a a reason for it he he picked up three England caps and just as his international career was about to take off he he got a gruesome injury that was treated even even worse um by the the lack of knowledge and indeed technology of of the time and he just lost that half yard of pace and perhaps a half yard a half yard of of belief and confidence and he he never really came back for for Everton he did play injured a lot and many many Everton fans will will know that uh, that and we could see that he was injured he was having the the cortisone injections and all of this to be able to get back out on the on the field but it was a it was a it was a tough place to work the midfield of a of a mid 80s first division side and nobody 
worked tougher than than Bracewell, and um, he was never the same after the after the injury. Uh, but in in some ways, you know, that was the the old school side of of Bracewell. Um, the the kind of new way was was really when we look at the Makaleli type type figures, he was in some ways a kind of prototype of of that kind of of midfielder, or even say that the Kante at Leicester kind of midfielder, who could break up play, use positional sense, and then turn the transitions as quickly as possible. Yeah, so as you say, he was he was at Everton, 110 appearances for Everton over that season and the next season. So he came he came in in 84, 85, which is that obviously that very famous season. Um, if you want to know more about that season in more detail, we do have an episode back. I think it's in season one we did that one. So have a look at series one back in the on the list there in whatever podcast player you use, and you'll be able to find it. Um, but then this injury stuff, Billy Whitehurst come in and he was out effectively for two years after that is it so when he came back and he wasn't a good player because after that he was let go by Everton wasn't he and ended up at Sunderland again after that one yeah he, he had three spells I think at, at Sunderland yeah he went from Everton I mean, to I Sunderland in 89 and he, he played in that Sunderland team that lost to Liverpool in the FA Cup in 92 he had he had four appearances, all losing in FA Cup finals, which is oh, right. uh, oh, wow. possibly possibly not a record, but certainly is a, a kind of uh, an element of poignancy and, and pathos. But it was the it was the injury that that did him. He had five operations, I think, while he was at Everton, and you know, the MRI scanners were obviously not of the same quality as they they are there. But there seemed to be some impatience on the Everton side. There's an article in the Liverpool Echo when he talks about them sort of believing it was all in his mind that 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 this injury was was a, a kind of psychological thing. It was psychosomatic rather than than physical. But when he went to the right specialist, they they found these sort of bone fragments and so on that was that were obviously floating about there. And you know the, the two things that that have really changed football, obviously for the better. And there's lots of things that have changed football for the better since the time that we're talking about some 35 years ago. So that's almost two generations ago. Is the quality of the pitches are so much better. Um, back then you'd be playing, not always on the kind of mud heaps of the 70s, but you'd certainly be in some pretty uh, tricky conditions in the, in the winter, wet pitches, slightly waterlogged pitches. You know, not good if you're having trouble uh, twisting around joints like knees and ankles and secondly you know the 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 availability and the expertise now that that footballers get in diagnosing injuries and even today you know we have mystery injuries but then um there was so many players with with sort of ankles and and knees and metatarsals or whatever they might be and you'd be waiting for news to come out of the club and sometimes players would come back back and they play two games and they'd be out for another three months. There was a lot of of kind of um, fishing around in the dark, you know, not a not a very thorough understanding of of sports science. And you know, I, I think we'll talk later about Marco Van Basten was another uh, great player mm. whose uh, career was curtailed by injury. And one just one just wonders if they had the pitches to play on and they have the medical technology and expertise that's available now i think players would have have played a lot longer then and obviously we're seeing it now the likes of cristiano ronaldo and, and others playing well into them the the kind of knowledge of nutrition uh, diagnosis of injuries rehabilitation is so much more advanced now and um 
you know, we we look back, it doesn't seem that long ago to to us. I mean, I've got, I can conjure a picture of Bracewell's haircut in my head sort of instantly. But it really was quite a different world then for football. One just wonders how many great players, uh, how how much more we would have enjoyed them for longer had the uh, have the facilities and knowledge been available then that we have now. You well, made he the... played on, didn't he? Um, it was in the 85-86 season. It was January 86, I think he got the injury from Whitehurst. Yeah. Uh, played on till the end of that season, but wasn't right. And, you know, as you say, medical science would have picked that injury up. And he probably would have gone in for an operation in January, you know, had, it, had we known then what we know now. And it effectively cost him a place at the 1986 World Cup, which he almost certainly would have gone to, I think, if he would have been fit and... You know, if you think about the problems England had at that tournament, uh, you know, Brian Robson went home injured, Ray Wilkins was sent off, this gap opened up in midfield. And, you know, I think he was 22 years old then, Bracewell. You know, that could have been his his big opportunity on the uh, the international stage because there's, there's a pass he hits in the... Is it the 4-1 win over Sunderland, Gary? When <laughs> yeah, I was, the, I was there. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's, I was... it's a... Yeah, it's a volleyed pass across the width of the field to Trevor Stevens to put him in for a goal. It's the kind of pass that, you know, Glenn Hoddle did it. You would just never hear the end of it, basically. It was just stunning ball. And he was great that season and the year after. And I remember in, yeah. the, uh, in the mid-90s, I, remember I bought a book. Um, it's called Don't Shoot the Manager, which had every England lineup and every England player, how many caps they got, how many goals they got. And I remember dipping into that and looking for Bracewell because my memory was been, well, you must have got about, you know, 10, 20 caps. So to find out he only got three, even in that era when, you know, the, the, the midfield was quite competitive, it was just, yeah, really underrated player. But he, was, he was effectively injured between 1986 and... 1989 wasn't he I mean it's difficult and by then I think his time had which is ridiculous he was probably only in his mid to late 20s when a midfielder should be playing at his best and in his prime that he really had the opportunity and by then what David Platt had come in Gascoigne Um, had emerged yeah Neil Webb was playing a lot around then as well yeah he just kind of missed his window really but you see what a player he could have been you know, he hadn't been hacked down by Billy Whitehurst. <laughs> yeah, but even even then, even then, I I'm not sure England would have picked him all that often because he was he was in some ways unfashionable. And you're right to pick out that match. That was an extraordinary match because we really started to believe that we were going to win the uh, win the championship at that match. I remember people walking out of the ground, and we we were all walking on air because. These players were all sort of in their early 20s. I think Trevor Stephen was kind of 21. Sheedy was maybe 24. Sharp was 23, 24. Bracefall was 22, 23. uh, Gary Stevens was there. uh, Derek Mountfield, uh, Neville Southall. They were all coming together as one, all at the the kind of age you wanted wanted players to to be uh, at. And you could see there was going to be sort of uh, a great season to come and and a great season... Uh, great seasons to follow after after that, um, and there's that there's that kind of energy you get. You know, it's always when you have young players coming together at the same time. And obviously, you know, Manchester United had their was it class of '92? What, what what is it? What were they called? The class 92. of 
92. Yeah, I mean, they, they had it at, at that point. It, it, it gives a connection, I think, to the, the fans. And the fans really connected that day. And, and you know, it, it could have been 10 that day. And the goals were, were sensational. And Bracewell was, was at the heart of it. But I still don't think he'd have played that many games for, for England because... At the time, you know, Ray Wilkins was getting a lot of uh, games, you know, and I, 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 you know, I'm the only Everton fan to say this, is that Bracewell and Reed together got 16 caps, and Ray Wilkins on his own got 68 more than that. <laughs> and you know, and Wilkins, Wilkins won one FA Cup and one Charity Shield during his England games, and Bracewell won a Charity Shield in 84, 85, and 87, and shared it in 86, won the... Uh, the League Championship in 84-85 as runners-up in 85-86 and were runners-up in the FA Cup twice as well and won the Cup Winners' Cup. Now, I know Rob Smythe and I have a bit of a difference of opinion on this. It's always been my view that, that, that the reason why trophies matter is that great players or very good players get into teams that win things, uh, partly because they themselves drive them forward, but also because... They, they, they get the the transfers. They get picked. They 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 find their way into winning teams, but England had a a kind of almost inferiority complex, I would say, in the eighties, and that they were constantly looking for what were deemed to be technical players, better technicians, players who would slow the game down. There was always this talk about slowing the game down, putting your foot on it, and what that often translated to, and. Ray Wilkins, until a kind of late period in his career when he went to Rangers, um, Milan, I think, and became a more dynamic player uh, for a while. Um, it, it, what it meant is that players in the midfield in particular would slow the game down. They'd pass it sideways. They'd, they'd take a touch. They'd ha have a touch. And it was a sense that, that if you played either route one or you played at a kind of whirlwind pace, and, and certainly that mid-80s Everton side played at, at, at a tremendous pace, you know, that they pressed from the front. I mean, they weren't the first to do that. Ian Rush was a major ball winner for Liverpool in the early 80s, so it was no surprise when Graham Sharp became a major ball winner for Everton in the in the mid-80s by harrying central defenders and closing down fullbacks and so on. But there was, I think, a, 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 an almost snobbish look that a midfield player had to be elegant like Hoddle or a, or a technician like Wilkins to play for England. And these down and dirty guys who picked the ball up, ran 10 yards into the opposition half and made a forward pass, that somehow that was not the way football was to be so, played. So. And you, you look at it and it, it seems bizarre because, you know, Nottingham Forest won two European Cups with with midfielders who did that but you know I, I don't think Bracewell he would have got more caps obviously um, had he not been injured but I don't think he was ever going to be a 50 cap guy because they were always looking for a different kind of midfielder so Nicky Butt was a better midfielder than Steven Gerrard then in your in your in your, <laughs> hypo, in your, in your hypothesis Gary yeah well he, he passed fewer balls into Rosette put it that way <laughs> he probably Speaking could keep the ball uh... he could probably keep the ball for 20 minutes better than Gerrard could I will say that yeah Speaking of Gerard, yeah. um, I, I liked your point, Gary, about how Reed and Bracewell uh, work together. I remember Alan Shearer making the point at the height of that whole tedious Lampard-Gerard debate. Uh, he said, well, what is an attacking midfielder? You know, because when I played, you had two midfielders and they found a way to work together. Yeah. You know, you, one goes, one stays, and, you know, you, you kind of work that out and, you know, your, your kind of endorsements and things aren't dependent on you know, whether you do that. 
um, you know, that kind of operation is possible. Yeah, I think an, another thing, and maybe this is, you know, you, you talked about sort of your first exposure to football, Mike, and maybe it's because, you know, a lot of the television coverage, the cameras weren't very good, the camera work wasn't very good, and we didn't get anything like the analysis that you get on Sky or the increasingly excellent analysis you get on Match of the Day. So you you often had to be there to see things um uh, in the 80s because the cameras weren't going to pick it up and I remember watching both of them quite closely and because they were central midfield players rather than wide midfield players they were the first players that I saw who were always taking the ball on the half turn in fact that's not strictly true Kenny Dalgleish was the, I think the first player I saw who whenever it went to him he always sort of had his backside in the defender's sort of crotch or something so he was always sort of on the half turn and Reed and Bracewell would always take the ball with their body shape sort of half diagonal. But what that gave them was a much broader field of vision. So I think that they that they could see where they were as, as well. So I think there was it always feels a bit like like most of these things. They they feel a bit sort of supernatural. They feel a bit like it's worked out on a training ground, or they feel a bit like you know the Toshak and Keegan where they did those ESP sort of uh, experiments, which are great fun in the telly of the seventies. But actually, it's just a matter of hard work and and thinking about it. And I think both of them would always take the ball slightly on the half turn, so it gave them options both to take the first touch but it also gave them a, a broader sight of the the field and, and where each other were and so you you got this lovely symbiosis where they would complement each other and they became a kind of of entity and i think the other thing that's part of that which has gone out of the game a bit now is there was no rotation of of uh, players yeah. then so if both were fit or indeed in Bracewell's case half fit they both played and that didn't matter whether it was an FA Cup tie a league cup tie uh, second replay on a Monday night with a league game on a Wednesday and another one on the Saturday they all played so they got used to to being together there were there was one substitute in a match often not used because you would leave them in case there was an injury so the 11 first teamers would very often be be playing together and that allowed them i think a much greater understanding and again we see i think with with leicester's side that they didn't chop and change their side when they went on to win uh, their extraordinary title and they 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 had that kind of knowledge just you know playing no passes away bracewell played trevor stephen and if some of that is has gone out of the game or if it's in the game it looks more drilled now it looks like the kind of manchester city thing where they know where sterling's going to be david silver gets his head up and he knows the brain is coming in on that side it, it, maybe it was the same thing but it, it it looked it looked more like lads who'd grown up together who played sort of in the parks and then got on to play in the youth team and in some right. cases this was was so but it was it was lovely to watch because it was very human and it was very authentic and it worked we have to decide whether or not paul bracewell is underrated ultimately that's the whole point of this section and usually when we nominate people they are but i'm just gonna be devil's advocate a bit can somebody be classed as a very underrated player or and when all the conversation that we've had has been about a season and a half of football. So if you think, if we fast forward 20 years, for example, and I'm not trying to be awful, Barack, would we say, well, Danny Drinkwater was an underrated player because he had a season of very good football? 
discuss. <laughs> I'll, I'll let Mike take I don't that know. I, I think Bracewell's different to Danny Drinkwater. Did, did Drinkwater play for England? I don't know. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. Yeah, a couple of friendly one appearance. Yeah, yeah one, I think. Um, yeah, I think I think with Bracewell, it's more the it's more the um, not so much unsung kind of nature of him, but just the fact that he just he's kind of forgotten. Really, you know, he got that terrible injury. He had a couple of years out, and he kind of fossilized in that period. And then you know the game kind of moved on without him a bit. So uh, maybe more, you know, if we splinter down these categories even further, <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll put him into forgotten hero um, or something like that. But I, I think he's underrated in the sense that he's been forgotten and slightly airbrushed out of uh, history. Not on Merseyside. And, and I was just, I was throwing the question in because yeah. I think he was for a period an absolutely top class midfielder. And Danny Drinkwater wasn't. He just looked good for a period, if you know what I mean. But I think that I think that Paul Bracewell absolutely was. So I, I, know, I was only throwing it in because we were we were focusing a lot of his career because a lot of the rest of his career there's not much is there much to be said yeah. about it. You know that's the that's the thing. But I suppose when you know, you've think, lost three years to an injury, yeah, what are you supposed to do? And then you and then you also, come back at half pace as well. I think. Yeah, yeah. I think also. I mean, if we talk, if we just take it as you know the the great couple of years he had. I think he was underrated even in that spell. Certainly That's by England. That's probably true. To, that is to probably only true, get three yeah. caps, yeah. So we'll bring that to a yeah, close I, then. I, We've got no more time, Gary. I've got to move on. <laughs> I understand. I was just going to agree that he was underrated. Oh, there you go. So th- there you go. That was Paul Bracewell as, as underrated. We're now going to move on to our main discussion of the week before we do our journeyman at the end. And our main discussion of the week is we're going to do a tournament review, as we do from time to time. We're going to talk about Euro 88. So let's take you back to 1988, shall we? What was happening in 1988? Well, Margaret Thatcher became the longest-running prime minister for 100 years. She hadn't been in charge for 100 years, although it fucking felt like that, didn't it? Um, the, um... Where, where, was she, where was she running? That's what I want to know. She seemed to be here most of the time. I wish yeah. she were running. Yeah. Uh, Comet Relief was started in 1988. Sandy Lyle became the first Brit to win the Masters Golf Tournament. Wimbledon won the FA Cup, of course, against Liverpool. GCSEs were introduced. Roy Kinnear fell off his horse. And Edwina Curry made everyone shit themselves about eating eggs. So there was a lot going on in 1988, for those of you that remember. If you don't remember what all that was about, you're going to have to look it up. But uh, so what, so what was also going on in 1988 was the European Football Championships held in what was still then West Germany. And it was, looking back now, we didn't realise at the time, but it was in many ways, I suppose, the last Cold War, proper Cold War football tournament, really, wasn't it? Because the USSR and Yugoslavia were coming apart of the seams from sort of 89 onwards, really. It was all a bit in flux. Even for Italia 90, it became a little bit in flux. And then you had, was it the, Com- the Commonwealth of Independent States in 1992 mm-hmm. and stuff? So... And it's strange looking back now that it probably was the last Cold War football tournament in Europe. Just to talk to you about the structure of it, it was in 1988 in West Germany. There was eight teams that made the finals as they had done in 1984 and would do again in 1992 before expansion to 16 teams came in Euro 96. So as usual, so as usual for, t- for this tournament at that time, it could be pretty tricky to qualify, couldn't it? France had had a horrendous qualifying tournament, for example. They don't, they'd won one of eight games in qualifying and... We're nowhere near. Yeah, they had a shot. I mean, considering they'd been in the previous two World Cup semi-finals, mm. I mean, they just kind of went off a cliff. Also, I think that that great midfield they had, uh, Puttini, uh, Tigana, Fernandez, and Jerez, they're all into their 30s then. Mm, yeah, so it's, um, 
Yeah, definitely yeah, a team uh, in transition. Yeah, I mean they were they were the defending champions, of course, from '84. Mm-hmm. Um, and now there's a there's an astonishing fact about Euro '84, which uh, I shall ask whether either of you guys will know the astonishing fact that uh, I'm thinking of. It was not covered well, live on television. It was not covered live. It wasn't even covered. I don't think in highlights except the final. Uh, yes. Um, Terrestrial broadcasters, as they were the only ones who were around then, said, uh, oh, England are not at Euro uh, 84, so we are not going to bother to cover <laughs> the football. <laughs> uh, and what we missed out on is, is uh, unfortunate in some ways, because I think Platini's performance in 84 was... Uh, second only to Maradona's in '86 as the dominant personality in a in a in a uh, a finals tournament because he scored something like nine goals, didn't he? In the in the five yeah, matches, he scored hat tricks and pair, and he was just absolutely irresistible and brilliant. But you know, as as side to do, four years is, uh, and we don't need uh, Jose Mourinho to to tell us this. Four years is a long time in football, and um, yeah, France. France, as they do, uh, were, were in one of those periodic slumps, and uh, yeah, they failed to qualify. I'm going to come back to that qualifying when I talk about my experience of, of watching uh, okay. Euro 88, but I'll come back to that later. So Euro 88 was definitely on the television as opposed to Euro 84. In fact, when I was looking at the somebody doing some research, looking at some of the highlights, ITV used the same theme tune as they used in Mexico 86, and they then also used on Saint and Greavesy. I mean, it was just blatantly yeah. lazy back then, wasn't it? Just, yeah, we'll just use this one again. We don't have to do a massive, like, involved artistic title scheme. Yeah. Was they were it ahead of the fees? game on recycling, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. The repeat fees for Tony Hatch, was it? Was that the yeah. uh, the deal? Yeah, and then it turned up on certain Greavesy, of course. Yeah, so anyway, so, yeah, France didn't qualify. England needed to draw their final game away to Yugoslavia to be sure to qualify, and they were 4-0 up after 25 minutes and won quite easily. So they were pretty strongly fancy going into the tournament. More of that later. Uh, the Netherlands qualified for the tournament for the first time since 1980 because they'd missed the last one. Again, only eight teams get to the final, so you find there's a lot of people in each tournament end up missing out. The group was easy and that for qualifying. They had to replay an 8-0 win over Cyprus because a homemade bomb, which is basically fireworks inside a tennis ball, was exploded near the Cyprus keeper in the 8-0 win. So they had to replay it behind closed doors. A little bit of a back, little bit of an aside backstory there. Obviously, the Netherlands won 4-0 and came into the tournament, and obviously the rest, as they say, is history. Bulgaria went into their last game at home to Scotland, needing to draw to qualify. Gary Mackay scored the only goal in the 87th minute, which meant that because Bulgaria were gone, (coughs) Ireland qualified instead. Scotland celebrated by drawing their final game 0-0 with Luxembourg. Again, it's worthwhile pointing out who wasn't there. France, we've already mentioned. Yugoslavia, who lost to England, were not there, but they would get to the World Cup quarterfinals two years later. Czechoslovakia were also quarter-finalists in 1990. They weren't there. Belgium had been semi-finalists in Mexico 86. They weren't there. Plus some pretty decent sides from Wales, Romania and Sweden didn't make it either. So yeah, there was a lot of um, a lot of absentees and this tournament really was the kind of elite in the final tournament, wasn't it? Yeah, I think the point you made a bit earlier is like Europe, I mean, it's not any smaller inside geographic but it felt a lot smaller then i think there were 32 uh countries in uefa at that point oh, course, and, yeah. and eight got to the final so it had this kind of perfect symmetry to it to work out i think there's <laughs> 56 member states of uefa now something like that well the us so is kind of, of helps in the balkans yeah and... so i mean that the whole 
you know makeup of Europe and European football just changed completely in the last thirty years. Uh, I mean, it, it might be it might be worth pointing out that in the in the mid eighties, you know, we thought places like Latvia and Lithuania were pretty much the same as Narnia. You know, we, we didn't yeah, know never heard these of things. I'd never heard of we them. Know, we didn't know what these things were. And um, and so it wasn't just the kind of uh, kind of uh, the the breakup of Yugoslavia and you know, football played quite a big part in in the breakup of, of Yugoslavia. Um, you know, a famous match dissolved into anarchy, uh, which which was the seed of, of some of the uh, of the problems that that uh, erupted between Croatia and Serbia. But um, very all, nicely all put, Gary. Some of the problems that were caused, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's problems. Yeah. Oh, sorry, we're not going to go into it. Just some problems. Yeah, no, we we but we did. You know, there, there's there's a long and you know very dangerous history in that part of the world, and we do seem to have, have come through some of it now. So yes, but but certainly um, the, the the old Soviet uh, the old Soviet uh, states were all uh, subsumed within CCCP or USSR. And uh, as you say, this was the, the, I think they were the last USSR team to, to play in a, in a tournament because I think by, I think by 1990, they might have become the CIS or, or whatever. But it, it certainly was a, was a very different landscape and um, it, it made for a, for a very different tournament. Um, I won't jump ahead just yet, but it, it, there are some things that are ascribed to 1990, which you could already see in 88, but I'll come back to that later. You mentioned about the, that, that last USSR team and there's something about this tournament. You know, obviously they got to the final and, and I, can rem- I can remember going to the youth club round about 1988 and my cousin, who was older than me, he was a big lad with a deep voice, pretending to be Igor Belenov. When we play football, and he come moving forward, the ball, he go belling off as he was moving forward and stuff. And that's <laughs> the kind of really, he had a really deep voice because his voice had broken. I think of mine, I didn't know belling off, and he was like this, this, this huge figure. But what what's interesting is when you look at that, and I, and I thought about this, I looked at the USSR team, thinking where were they all from? The players who played in that final for the USSR, and I'm not giving away anything about the final here. It's just an interesting point. And when you look at it, Dasayev, the goalkeeper, was Russian then pretty much the rest of the starting 11 was either Ukrainian or from Belarus. You know, it wasn't, everyone assumed, I think, that when it split up, that Russia being this gigantic landmass of the population would, 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 would somehow continue this USSR situation. But actually, when you look at it, they were, they were literally a confederation of players. And, and actually, if you looked at the 88 team, you would expect that Ukraine would come out of it very, very strongly and maybe still have the most potential to be that stronger than Russia, I don't know. But um, yeah, that was interesting for me, looking at that. Yeah, it was Dynamo Kiev, wasn't it? I mean, I think, yeah, it's all the... Uh, and Robinovsky, I think, was the manager. He's, yeah, he's you know, Ukrainian he's as well. Yeah. yeah, Quite famously uh, linked to them. Uh, the, actually, the last USSR team to play in a tournament was Italia 90. And then, oh, uh, right, there were USSR. The Soviet Union dissolved uh, at the end of 1991. But, uh, you know, Perestroika, Glasnost, they were already kind of underway... Um, toward, coming towards the end of the 80s. So it, those kind of things were in motion. But I think with the Soviet Union, we were all very influenced by things like Rocky IV, weren't we? You know, the, <laughs> yes. the, the, this idea that, you know, they're, they're, they're training, you know, with all this kind of fantastically futuristic, you know, equipment. I remember when you got, when if you're a you know, supported English team that got drawn against an Eastern European team in a European competition, there was always the thought that, you know, you'd go over there and, you know, you'd, 
you get goals given against you for no reason and all these kind of like you know negative stereotypes about the communist cheat cheating and all this uh yeah it was a very much part of the uh the mindset back in the uh, mid 80s uh, i think and you'd always you'd always be somewhere like i don't know sparta prague and and the commentary would be coming down a, a dodgy line and it would be it's a goal it's a goal to prague, prague of gold. and and you know you, you you get this kind of and it was always very foggy you know and uh, and it, it was like that but i think the other thing particularly with reference to the Soviet Union, is that we've been brought up with a breathless Alan Weeks commentating on the ice hockey at the Olympics, where the Soviet Union side were always, and I mean always, referred to as the big red machine. Yeah, the red machine, yes. So, you know, any Soviet Union side in any sport was either explicitly or implicitly a big red machine. <laughs> You know, the, the the Terminator had nothing on the big red machine who just kept coming and coming and coming. And, of course, they had a, a player Ballad called Vaseline off. Rats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> rats. <laughs> you know, literally, they had rats playing for them. Uh, so, yeah, um, they, they, they were always mysterious. They were always deemed to be, you know, fine athletes. And, you know, that word technician was often brought to bear. Um, but... I mean, it wasn't in '88. It wasn't just the Soviet Union side that were that were unknown. We didn't know much about any of the players at all. We, of course, we knew the Republic of Ireland side. There was a very young Italian side, and we'd heard a little bit about this golden boy uh, Viali, who who was a millionaire already because his parents owned the telephone system or something of Italy. So we'd heard a little bit about him. Um, I think we we knew a little bit about the Netherlands because they played a friendly in which. At the end of it, I remember uh, at Wembley, and Rude Hullet was interviewed, and he he spoke in better English than any English footballer we'd heard in the previous three years. So um, we knew a little bit about them, but you know, foreign footballers were were largely unknown. We certainly didn't know much about Klinsman. We might have heard a little bit about Mateus, but if they were if they were if they hadn't played in in the World Cup, and in some instances even if they had played in the World Cup in '86. We didn't know about them because the 84 wasn't shown and club games, uh, the European matches were, of course, suspended after after Hazel uh, disaster. So lots of these players were were unknown quantities and that did two things. It made it made every match exciting. So I know there's a sense in which the. The tournament is is deemed to be, you know, on on various metrics of goals scored and all this kind of stuff. Not a particularly exciting tournament, but looking back on it, particularly because it was only two weeks, it was tremendously exciting because we didn't know who any of these players were. The kits were sensational, um, and it only lasted two weeks anyway, so there was no time to get sort of complacent or bored or anything like that. Bloody hell, there's a match on tonight. In fact, there's two matches. There's one at quarter past five, another one at eight o'clock. You know, so we we absolutely absolutely loved it and uh, uh, one of the things that that often gets ascribed to to italia 90 we, we could already see the signs of it in in 88 and i'll give you an example of of what i mean um England were, were pretty well fancied going into the uh, tournament because, you know, it's coming home, it's coming home, it's coming home, even before it's coming home was a, was a thing. Uh, but when you look at the lineup there, 
I mean, I would look down those those teams and I think, yes, you know, the Germans, of course, the Germans. Uh, Denmark, they don't win tournaments. The Soviet Union, they don't win tournaments. The Republic of Ireland, you're joking, aren't you? Italy, well, you know, Italy are Italy. The Netherlands, well, you know, no Cruyff, none of that kind of stuff. And Spain, well, they never win tournaments. So we were looking at that thinking we've only really got two or three rivals here. There's the Germans, of course. There's always the bloody Germans. Then there's Italy and maybe Holland. But if we can get past those, we could win the thing. It's coming home. It's coming home. And so and this is what, what looking back on it, um, I find surprising now, but it definitely happened. The, the England-Netherlands uh, game, which was, I think, the second game of the group stage for England, that was kicking off at either quarter past four, quarter past five, whatever it was. It was the early match, I think it was on a Wednesday. I was working in a buying office for Dorothy Perkins. I've mentioned this before. But I was, I was in the West End, and in this buying office, there were 120 or so people were working there. And 110 of them were women, and they were women interested in fashion. So I think there was about 10 blokes, most of whom were gay. And it wasn't what you would call a natural hotbed of football interest. And far fewer women were interested in football in the in that time so that's not a a kind of sexist comment but i remember for the england holland game um we had these televisions that we either hired or were brought onto the floor of the buying office so we weren't all going to go home early big to back watch tellies the then as well full tube on a big back on stands like yeah. you had at school and you know a 26 inch screen and a, a big uh, back end of it as well and we had about four or five of these that were on the the buying floor so we could sit at our desks and monitor what was going on at the uh, match and of course i was the the kind of expert so they were they were all asking me about the, well, well one or two people were asking me about this this new forward that holland hackers didn't play the first game called marco van basten and i said well i'm not that sure about him but i think he's pretty good turned out he was pretty good <laughs> So, yeah, so it was um, two groups with four teams in each, obviously, because there was eight teams. Group A were West Germany, Italy, Spain, and Denmark. West Germany topped the group. I mean, West Germany were hosts, and, you know, West Germany's record in tournaments is, well, I don't know. It puts mid-'80s Stephen Hendry to shame in terms of <laughs> in terms of a bit of a snooker reference for Mike there. In terms of <laughs> probably very uh, wrong as well. Mid-'90s, Lee. Yeah, sorry. Was it, who was the mid-'80s then? Joe Johnson. Uh, Steve, no, that was Steve Davis. It was still Steve Davis then, was it? I thought yeah. he'd tailed off by then. Anyway, so yeah, so they were just, especially in this tournament as well, they seemed to be kind of incredible. And they were at home, so there were lots of hopes there. They got this group A, which they drew with Italy. Not a brilliant game. Manch- a young Roberto Mancini scored his first goal. It's a good point about Viali, isn't it? Because I can't think of any, has there, ever, has there been another gentry footballer? In the past, you know, they probably were way back in the amateur days when Royal Engineers were playing and stuff like that. Corinthians. Corinthians. And all that stuff. But, I mean, he must be the last gentry footballer from from professional footballer from anywhere. Listeners, if you know of any that are knocking around, let, let us know. I think James Beattie went to a public school and there's been one or two kind of public school. And Graham was so red boxed, didn't he? So that yeah. was obviously something that yeah. couldn't be trusted. Was, and meant he was... was about... 
Viali is that he was taking a pay cut to play in the uh, Serie A with the highest, you know, sort of paying league in the in the world at that time. And this was all, you know, this was all added to the kind of glamour and mystery and, you know, the kind of playboy lifestyle. Does he finish, you know, a match and then go off to his yacht in Monaco where he's surrounded by um, Monica Bellucci types and all this kind of stuff? Um, you just, it's impossible at this distance to to summon up just how different that world was, how little we knew about the continent, um, you know, and maybe it's <laughs> a portent of what might be over the next decade or so. Tell you what, I, yeah, I, these... I, I miss the, the, the you know, the, the gentle certainty of mutually assured destruction across an iron <laughs> curtain, I tell you. There's something to be said yes. for it, given where we are now, let me tell you. It was, yeah. like, a war, it was like a warm blanket, wasn't it? It yeah. was, yeah. <laughs> Yes, it was. And, and I remember, I think the only charming story I've ever heard Graham Souness ever tell or anything charming to ever come out of his mouth, to be honest, was him telling a story about Viali when they were at Sampdoria together. And he, he, he Viali had disappeared and they were by some lake for some training. And when they went down, Viali had taken... Ta- it's not much sure what he was doing, but Viali had taken the string out of his tracksuit bottoms or his shorts <laughs> and was trying to lasso a swan off the lake uh-huh. <laughs> and drag it in, apparently. That was... Uh, but I suppose when you come from gentry, you'd probably think that swans are your rightful property, don't you? So you just crack on with it. But... Bake them into a pie. Yes, quite. So, yeah, so the, the opening game, Mancini scores, Andy Bramer equalises their indirect free kick. I have, I have a completely, even to this day, completely unreasonable dislike of Andrew, and Andy Bramer. Just everything Why? about... I don't know. I think it's just his, just this that that mulleted face and the fact that he, he always seemed to be... That was a bit of a jammy goal that he scored there. I think it's simply because he just seemed a bit jammy and was German, and and because I was young, that was all I needed to dislike him. And I can't, I can't dislike. It's like first love, I suppose. You can't dislodge the emotion; it's very strong. Yeah. I think was, this, this tournament was um, is a bit of a staging post for both of these teams. I think so. Italy were building up to Italian ninety. Uh, obviously, the World Cup they're about to host. They just stepped away all the great players that had won the eighty two World Cup and then tried to defend it in eighty six. And then had put this kind of young team together with an idea that it might go on and win at Italia 90. And uh, West Germany, who are the favourites for this tournament going in, were in a pretty similar position as well, actually. So they just got to the World Cup final in 86, almost by accident, uh, as they do. And uh, <laughs> I, I think uh, Franz Beckenbauer, was, he was in an interview where he was being asked about... Um, the German team that got to the final in 86, how did he do it? And the interview was like reeling off all the names of the, the players he'd used in the final. And Beckenbauer just burst out laughing and said, can you believe we got to the final with these players? <laughs> but uh, by the time they got to the 88 European Championships, this is the tournament where Quinsman made his debut. So yeah. this is the first continental glance of uh, Quinsman. Jürgen Kohler came into the team. I think for this one, Olaf Turn, I think, would have done as well. So it's, they were... Although they're expected to win here, I mean, they, they, it was very much the seeds of the team that would uh, go on to win at Italian. Well, the team think. that played in that Italy team, in that Italy game, the opening game, was uh, Ike Immel in goal, Buchwald, Andy Bremer, Kohler, H- Matthias Hergert, Pierre Litbarski, still there, Lothar Matthias, Rudy Fuller, Olaf Tone, yeah, as you mentioned, Thomas Berthold, Jurgen Klinsmann was starting. Who was on the bench? Nobody that you'd really remember. Uh, the Italian team was Walter Zenga, Franco Baresi, Giuseppe Bergami, Riccardo Ferri, Maldini, 
12 years old at the time, I'm guessing. <laughs> Carlo Ancelotti. And I think, I mean, this would not be not long after his Milan debut, which he made at 16, if I remember. So he yeah, probably wasn't yeah. far off. Um, Carlo Ancelotti. Nepotism. Nepotism. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, yeah, no talent at all. Just his dad putting him in there, yeah. Carlo Ancelotti, Fernando Di Napoli, Giuseppe Giannini, Donadoni, Mancini and Viali up front. You uh, look at that side and you think, dear me, that's a good side, don't you? And of course, the 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 they always look for a golden boy up front, you know, from the days of Riva and it was Rossi in 86. And the golden boy who turned out in, in 90 was Scalacci and he wasn't even in the side uh, then. But um, you look at that Italian side and you think, oh, there's some pretty good players there. And you look at the German side, in particular, you look at that German defence and that kind of what was then again slightly unusual in that you, you look across that back line, I bet there was none of them under about 6-1 or 6-2. And you know, they were they were big guys who ran hard and they kept running at you. And uh, that was you know, I, I understand your antipathy towards uh, Andy Bramer because he was very much of that kind, him and Manny Kaltz, you know, they they were big guys and they kept coming after you like bloody Terminators. And they never they never seemed to give you an inch, you know, he never gave you an easy ball, never gave you a get-out pass or any of these things. And, you know, that's probably one of the reasons why you could have a, a team who were, on the face of it, less talented. And that German side is less talented than the Italian side that you've you've read out. But somehow they, they find a way in bringing some of the the less quantifiable or the less obvious uh, requirements for a football team to the table and, and getting over the line. Denmark were up against Spain in their first game, <clears throat> lost to Spain again. As they, as they always, Spain can't win tournaments, but they can beat Denmark. Mm-hmm. That much we do know. Um, uh, but again, I think this was the this was that middle point after the eighty six. That glorious eighty six team was just getting that little bit too old, weren't they? And not quite ready. Entertaining game. They lost 3-2. Laudrup scored a lovely goal. West Germany beat Denmark 2-0 just to kind of hammer home how much Denmark were flagging. Klinsman scored his first ever goal in a tournament in that game. And then Italy were up against Spain, which I think a lot of people saw as the biggest game of the group, really. Uh, Because if you assume that West Germany are always going to qualify, then it was whoever wins this game goes through. And it was Italy 1, Spain 0. Yeah, so if we go by Viali in this, I think uh, the ball's played into him on the edge of the area, isn't he? He just rolls the defender out of the way and then uh, drills it into the bottom corner with his left left foot. Yeah, just a quick word on Denmark. I mean, they were very lucky to be there at all, really. Um, in the qualifying section, they scored four goals in six games and had Wales won either of their last two games, uh, one of which was in Copenhagen against Denmark, the other which was... Uh, again, was a uh, way to Czechoslovakia. Uh, Wales would have qualified ahead of them. Um, I actually, I was living in Wales at the time, and uh, I went to watch uh, the Wales home game with Denmark because obviously, you know, I went on to write the co-author of the book with Robin Lars. I was transfixed by Denmark from the '86 World Cup, so I badgered my dad to take me to watch uh, Denmark against Wales in Cardiff. You know, and oh god, they were really disappointing. I mean, they lost one nil to Wales on the night. Uh, Mark Hughes scored. Neville Southall was Neville Southall. He had one of those um, Neville Southall games. Um, but that Denmark team—they'd just gone over the brow of the hill, really. Uh, a couple of big players had retired. Morton Olsen, I think, wasn't at this tournament. Soren Busk, and four of the team were playing for PSV Eindhoven. 
who did the uh, treble that season. Mm. They won the double in Holland and then they won the European Cup as well. And we interviewed even Nielsen for the Danish Dynamite book. And he said when those players, when they got to Euro 88, they were just knackered. You know, they had nothing left. Mm. Elkiar had just uh, left Verona as well. So he was kind of coming to the end of his career. And it's, um, I think Gary made the point earlier, you know, we, we don't often see these teams. The only time you would see the big international teams or most people would be at tournaments. So if you see a team in 86, that's brilliant. When you, the next time you see them is, is in 88, there's the anticipation. It's like, Oh, I, I remember this team. They were really good. <laughs> and then in Euro 88, you know, they lost all three games and just, yeah, had a really poor tournament. In the Italy Spain game, the, um, just it's worthwhile us running through the Spanish team. We, we've kind of done the Italian team, which but the Spanish team of, of this period in '88 was Zubi Zaretta in goal. Uh, they played a kind of three-four-two, weirdly, but uh, so they well a sweeper they played. Uh, so it was they had Gena and Andre Newer and as sweeper, Thomas Reniones, Manuel Sanchez, who played until he was about forty at Real Madrid, <laughs> if I remember correctly. I'm not even joking; he was like properly knocking around for ages. Uh, Mikel Soler, Michel was right midfield. Ricardo Gallego, Victor Munoz, Rafael Gordillo was their captain, and then Emilio Butragueño up front, and Jose Marie Baquero was up front as well. Uh, interestingly, uh, Chiki Bagheristan was on the was on the bench as well. Came on in the seventy third minute in this game. Who's now? Is he at City now? I always forget. Yeah, he's some kind of technical director. Yeah, there, he was at Barca yeah. before that, wasn't he? I think he's uh, Pep's big mate, isn't he? But uh, yeah. yeah, so they lost one nil Spain anyway in this game to a. Uh, I say, as you said, Mike, a lovely Gianluca Viali goal. Can I just uh, make a quick point on Butragueno, actually? Mm. So he uh, he scores in the Denmark-Spain game. So Butragueno, I think, in his whole career, he scored six times in international tournaments, and five of them were against Denmark. <laughs> so in, in the in the '86 World Cup, he got the four goals against them in the five-one that knocked them out. So when he and he's, at, he's also off. So when the, the ball falls to Butragueno, the Danish commentator, Sven Gers, who was also the commentator in Denmark for the 5-1, when Butragueno puts the ball in, Sven Gers goes, Butragueno, <laughs> <laughs> It's a beautiful moment of, oh, Christ, not you again. Mike's mentioned it there, but it's worthwhile. I'll just, I'll just remind all the listeners that if you don't haven't got it hold of it yet and you haven't read it, you really should do. Danish Dynamite, the book about that Danish yeah. team, is 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 quite literally, well, not literally, but is dynamite. So go and have a read of it. Yeah. Fantastic. And, uh, yeah, I'm on the bones of my ass as well, so if you could please buy it, that would be, uh, <laughs> <laughs> be lovely. Yeah, Bittergaino was, was an interesting player. I'm, I'm trying to think of parallels with him today. And I think... I think today's equivalent would be someone like Sergio Aguero because roughly the same size, scored a lot of goals in and around the six-yard box. And um, Aguero's yeah, a bit wanna... more physical, I think, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. a little bit, but but not, not that much. I think, yeah, Butragueno was a, a bit slighter. But um, there's certainly something in, in the two of those being, or one being the kind of spiritual ancestor of the... Of the yeah, uh, yeah, not you mean. But yeah, he could. He was one of those. He could beat people in a phone box. Butragueño was one of those. Yeah, it was one of those goals, isn't it? When he sort of dribbles the yeah. ball along the touchline, like Carnu did that time for Arsenal. And uh, but he, he scored an awful lot of scrappy goals as well. He was a he was very much a, a fox in the box. Didn't care how he got him. So yeah. um, so Group A finishes with West Germany on top on five points, Italy on five points, Spain on two points, and Denmark on a big fat zero. Group. 
2, or Group B, if you want to call it, contained Soviet Union, Netherlands, Republic of Ireland and England, the opening game of which at half past three on the 12th of June 1988 was England versus the Republic of Ireland. Yeah, and I was watching it in the flat in which I'm, I'm sitting now because uh, I don't move around very much. So, um, yeah, and it was who put the ball in the England net. Worthwhile running through the teams, I think, just because we, so we can get a picture of when Gary was saying before about how England were quite fancied and all that kind of stuff. The England team was, in this game, Peter Shilton in goal, of course, Gary Stevens, Kenny Sansom. The other two centre halves were Mike with the two centre halves were Mark Wright and Tony Adams. Midfield was Neil Webb, Brian Robson, Chris Waddle, John Barnes, and then up front was Peter Beardsley and Gary Lineker. That is not a bad side. Some people might be screaming at their devices now and going, How can you say it's not a bad side when Neil Webb's in it? However, that's probably a little bit of revisionist unfairness, would you say, Mike? Oh, definitely. I mean, well, well, there's another underrated player you could do, I think, Neil Webb. Um, the, the big call for that, whether he went with uh, Glenn Hoddle, uh, and also what he did at centre-back as well, because Terry Butcher missed this tournament because he had a broken leg. Um, you know, and that, and that turned out to be quite a big deal as well. But, you know, he was a really good player, Neil Webb, in that Forest team at the back end of the 80s. And around this time, with, you know, I think he signed for United a year later, the future of the, the England midfield, basically. Um, no, it didn't quite work out like that. I mean, he's in, he's another player that you know succumbed to quite a serious injury as well. But, yeah, I, I, I was going to say I was just going to add to that. Say, you know, Neil Webb was a fine player and every worth every piece of that uh, slot in the England midfield, and it was a a strong England side. You got to remember people like people like Mark Wright were were tremendous uh, ball playing centre halves at that time you know England aren't supposed to be able to produce them but he was uh, Adams was was a rock Robson when he was fit was good but often wasn't fit so the kind of of optimism that led to us getting those tellies on the on the floor of a, of a buying office in the West End was was well founded um, but it just all just slid through the fingers it was just a disaster so Ray Houghton scores after six minutes and there's just no way back, basically. So it wasn't it wasn't exactly the great start. Let's do the Ireland team, of course, while, while we're here. Pat Bonner in goal, Chris Morris, Chris Houghton, Mick McCarthy at centre-half, Kevin Moran, Ronnie Whelan, Paul McGrath, Ray Houghton, John Aldridge, Frank Stapleton and Tony Galvin. Again, I mean, you'd have to read across and say it's not as good as the England team, but it's not a great surprise it wins, is it, looking back? It was. I don't think it's that. You know, looking at that lineup, it's not that blockbuster in your result. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a strong side. You know, it went on to qualify for Italian ninety as well. You know, Republic of Ireland. They had um, players out of their own. I think Liam Brady was suspended for this game, wasn't he? Is that right? I think he'd been he's certainly not playing on, nor is he on the bench. So you would think so. Yeah, I mean, he was in the squad. I'm pretty sure he'd been sent off in the qualifiers, and he was, he was suspended for the first, um, definitely for the first game, anyway. Um, but you know, you know, if you look at the clubs those players were playing at, and you know, you match that up against England. I mean, you're not talking like a tremendous difference between the two sides. I don't think. I sense uh, Gary has a different opinion. Judging by the yeah. noise he made. Yeah, I mean, I think if you were in the playground and you had the players lined up and you were doing picks, you know, I'll have him, I'll have him there. You you, you pick Paul McGrath early on, especially if he was fit. 
and you pick Ronnie Whelan early on. I don't think you pick any of the others before you picked an England player. I really don't. But I'm, but I'm not saying the and distance between wrote, the picks. What well, I'm my point the distance between the picks is not so horrendous that it's not. I think it was almost people presented it as an impossible win. But I don't think when you look at it now, it should never have been presented. The press will always present it like that, but it should never have been, I suppose. Uh, that England side should beat that Republic of Ireland side eight times out of the ten and draw. Yeah, maybe one. that's fair enough. Yeah, maybe. That's and fair so, it, I mean, I, I'm not here being a, a little Englander. Um, no. the, the players are better, uh, and we shouldn't be we shouldn't be losing to that, and um, we shouldn't have lost to that uh, Republic of Ireland side, particularly with 84 minutes to score a goal to equalize and they couldn't they couldn't get a goal when you look at that attacking talent that was available it was it was a really and you know there may be mitigating factors the english season was very long but most of those republic of ireland players have played the whole of the english uh, season but england were England were far, far better than And if that. you look at the game, they did England did create a lot of chances and Pat Bonner had quite a decent game as well. So on any other day, your point, Gary, it may have been one of the eight that they did win. It just happened yeah. that this is how it rocked out and turned out in this game. Yeah, Gary Lineker had a miserable game in front of goal. And it later turned out he had hepatitis during Yeah. And it was just that perfect storm of circumstances, really. You know, it was an early goal. You know, Bonner had a great game. England missed a lot of chances. But I, I still think England were a bit complacent going into that. I mean, there's a clip um, on YouTube before the game where Nick Owen, I think, is talking to <laughs> yeah, Ian, yeah. Ian St. John and Brian Clough. And Nick Owen goes, so have they got a chance, the Republic? Like, have they got a chance? You know, in a heads-up game of football where both teams have qualified. And I don't know. It just It just seemed a bit... That's something Brian Clough said that he's pleased that Mick McCarthy's fit because he's such a terrible defender. Yeah, Brian Clough's got a great history of uh, saying things before England games that come back to (laughs) haunt. He called called Jan Tomaszewski a clown um, ahead of the ill-fated 1973 Mm. World Cup qualifier with Poland when England got knocked out. Yeah, well, with, I, and I, I kind of get that, and you don't want a pundit or an opposition manager giving your team talk, but really, a defence marshal by Mick McCarthy should not blank out a fit Lineker, Barnes, uh, Beardsley. I mean, it's just no, I, no way. And it's nice to know that Clough and Keener have one mind about the international credentials of Mick McCarthy as a centre-half, <laughs> yeah. isn't it, that came out later, so... But also, I mean, I would say about England, the hype going into it, I don't think it was entirely unjustified. No, it wasn't. You, you know, you had uh, Barnes and Beardsley who just had that tremendous 87-88 season for Liverpool. Uh, Lineker scored against, I think he scored in a friendly against Switzerland just before this tournament. It was, it was his 26th goal in 32 games for England, something like that. Mm. This is the golden boot winner from, yeah. you know, the 86 World Cup. I mean, there's justifiable optimism. It's not just, you know... They were second favourites, I think, but that's not just a patriotic flurry of betting, you know, that's the <laughs> which over, often happens uh, now, yeah. their odds. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it was, uh, you know. But I think, I truth. mean, you say, you say, if you could transplant it to now, and I know it's a bit of a daft thing to do, but if you could say you can have Lineker, Beardsley, Waddle, and John Barnes, Barnes. I mean, mm. leaving the mid to, midfield two, perm two from whatever, but. If somebody offered you those four, now you go, oh yeah, yes, please, thank you very much indeed. Yeah, yeah. And you you might say the same about Mark Wright at centre half because he was a really outstanding centre half for three or four years. Was he still at Southampton then in '88? He might have been. It's worth checking, I think. But I don't know. 
Soros and O'Neill tell us anyway. So basically, they won. It's something about, there was some reflection about, is it just simply to do with how much bloody-mindedness Jack Charlton put into this team? Because um, there's a story about on the way to the game, Kevin Sheedy's playing <coughs> cards with him. And basically, Kevin Sheedy put a card down that jeopardised Jack Charlton's chances of winning. And Jack Charlton said, uh, basically, if you don't pick that pick that card up, you will not be playing, you will not be selected on the bench, which he was meant to be doing. And he was deadly serious, apparently. And he, when he got to the ground, Kevin Sheedy was still shitting himself until the team sheet went on the wall. But basically, he might not be in the team because he'd beaten the gaffer at mm. cards. Uh, how do you end up, of all the options that are available to you, reading a book, <laughs> put the earphones in, even if they were ridiculous yeah. ones over Sony Walkman, how do you end up playing cards with Jack Charlton? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, 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 I can think of one or two other ways I wouldn't want to spend half an hour, but not many. Hmm. Playing cards with Jack Charlton, she yeah. was. Of course, what people. Oh. Sorry, go on, Mike. I was just going to say a quick thing on the the goal actually that Houghton scores. It's the way England started this tournament. It's very similar to the way they started the '86 World Cup when they lost the opening game to Portugal. So it's a it's a mistake by Kenny Sanson basically. So it's a quite a basic cross into the area. And he just boots it straight up into the air. <laughs> Sorry. It lands near the six yards. Houghton gets the first of his very famous goals for the Republic of Ireland. You know, nods it back across. It was, no, it's a scrappy goal, but it's an error entirely of England's own making, really. Of course, what people don't tend to remember about this tournament, or you know, it's worth pointing out, is that Netherlands played the USSR twice because they played him in the group yeah. stages as well. Um, USSR won this first uh, turnout, even though Russia, sorry, the Netherlands were the better team for a while. Yeah, Vasily Rats with another great uh, long-range goal with his left foot. Uh, very similar to Mexico 86, except he <laughs> uh, hit this one all along the floor. And um, yeah, so that was the, that really, so a defeat for the Netherlands. And a, so it was basically like loser goes home, so. Yeah, uh, we mentioned Van Basten already. This is the first appearance of Van Basten in the tournament. Mm. He plays uh, up front with Johnny Bosman, but we have to point out that it's not that Bosman. It's a different one. I think <laughs> the Bosman ruling Bosman was a Belgian, wasn't he? Jean-Marc Bosman. Jean-Marc Bosman, yeah. Uh, yeah, so anyway, so he, he hadn't really played much with Milan, uh, Van Basten, coming to this tournament. And although he did finish the season pretty well, but nobody was quite sure how he was going to do. Well, we soon found out, didn't we? Um Netherlands played pretty well, but still lost the game. And then, as you say, Mike, it came into the England versus Netherlands next, which was a kind of winner-take-all game, really. A pretty decent game. Memories of that. I have a very... It's one of my... F- Brian Robson's double-fisted come-on sort of salute after he scores. <laughs> it, it's yeah. something that, that is etched on my memory because it, amidst all the screaming I was doing when he did score at the time. Because it definitely did feel like they were on the way back into it, really, at that point, and then and then it so much wasn't. Yeah, it really did. I mean, they conceded just before half time. Um, Van Basten does a, a sort of beautiful little turn. Uh, like he takes it away from Tony Adams and then just tucks it in the far corner. I mean, he gives he gives Adams a really horrible afternoon. Oh, he game. did. Um, and yeah, when Robson, I mean, I think this is the only, I think I'm right in saying this, this was the only tournament where Brian Robson was fully fit for the entirety of it. Um, that sounds about his, right, yeah. Yeah, and his goals are brilliant, guys. Very atypical, oh, very oh, typical Brian Robson. Absolutely, you know, yeah. Bang one, on two brand. charges yeah. through. 
Clips smashes over, gets, it in. Gets clattered as he scores as well. <laughs> Double and fist pump. Straight up. Um, yeah, it's a fantastic goal. Also, uh, Glenn Hoddle hit the post from a brilliant free kick in this game. Lineker hit the post in the first half, I think. I mean, yeah, they were pretty unlucky in this game, England. But, you know, you know, if you don't put your shots in, you know, that's what can happen to you. And I think I'm pretty sure Van Basten's second is offside, actually. It, look, it looks offside to me. I mean, we don't have the camera angles and all that to um, to prove it. And then he puts the third one in the corner. But it's, um, it'd be, yeah, a brilliant hat-trick. And uh, that was him off and running in the tournament then. Yeah, I mean, my my memory of it is at, at least, I think, partly a result of, of 86 and Maradona in that as soon as Van Basten got that second goal, I remember thinking... We've run up against a great player here, who is who is whose tournament this is going to be. You just you just felt that the 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 wind was behind Van Basten. I mean, he was such a beautiful player to watch. You know, he he ran with such elegance. He looked like a god, and you know, he had he had Hullet playing alongside him, who in some ways was was similar, and they were both sort of half a head taller, it seemed, than any any other England player, and. It just it just looked like it was going to be his his tournament, and that's not sort of reading back into it. As I say, I think it was partly influenced by Maradona in in '86, and when that second goal went in, if you had said to me, "Are England going to equalise, or is Van Basten going to get a hat trick?" I would have said Van Basten's going to get a hat trick because there's a kind of it was a tide. It was also a kind of sense, even then, there was a kind of fatalistic sense with, with England that they would find a way of of going out of tournaments. In this case, it wasn't penalties. It was more like 86 where you come up against a great player at his, uh, at his peak. And uh, that was... That was my feeling looking back. Looking back on the game, it's a kind of slight awe for for Van Basten and to some extent Hullet. And of course, those those orange shirts made a difference as well. You know, for any of us who saw the '74 side and you know uh, the the Dutch names with the great Ajax side of the of the early '70s, all of those sort of thoughts swirl around in in your head and. It, it kind of becomes a confirmate. Was it confirmation bias when it happens? Mm. You think, well, it was always going to happen. It, it it wasn't always going to happen, and yet it was also always going to happen. Then next up is Ireland versus Russia, which is well, three words really: really Ronnie Whelan's volley. Which, uh, for those who don't remember, if you're listening, direct off a throw-in, he does. It's not quite a bicycle kick, is it? It's a sort of fly inside volley with his left foot from a foot yeah, of the 18-yard line. Yeah, he throws himself into it really tentatively. It's um, it's like it's a great two-touch finish. So the first touch is the throw-in, and then the, <laughs> yes. the second touch is um, you know, he hooks it into the top corner. It's sort of just I've, I don't think I've ever quite seen a goal that's like that. It's, yeah, uh, it and really I is quite something. Even at the high water mark of um, who was it who had that ridiculous long throw for Stoke and and people? Oh, Rory Delap. Yeah, Rory Delap. And Dave Challoner for Tranmere yeah, for Stockport yeah. County. Yeah, even at the height of Delap mania, um, I don't recall anybody sort of volleying in a, a, a throw in directly the way Whelan did uh, then. Um, but football at that time, and we'll we'll come to an even more famous volley, I'm sure, uh, <laughs> as we wrap up this. Football at the time did have that capacity to to surprise you, and I think some of it again was because so 
little football was was covered. There wasn't much in the way of live matches, and you know, match of the day cameras covered two two games, and then on ITV you got regional coverage. So you, you'd have a Sunday uh, afternoon game, and then often they would go to sort of Brentford for the uh, third division clash between uh, Brentford and Southend because that was the one being covered by LWT. So you didn't really see these things. Um, so often it seemed a, a kind of surprise, but. Um, you know, there haven't been many since. I mean, I say I literally cannot recall a goal before or since that was volleyed in from a throw-in. But Ronnie Whelan, who was an absolutely outstanding player, and I think actually Whelan is a bit underrated because even though he's revered, he was you know a really really fan. He was world-class player. Um, where as I don't think he always gets the credit because he could do stuff like that and he scored a few lobs as well, um, as well as being a brilliant player. But Never before, never since. But in terms of like execution, if you're on a pitch with this, is I think it's kind of would you what would you say was it, Mike? Twenty percent, Mark Hughes. Imagine Mark Hughes going twenty percent at something; it'd probably look a bit like that. <laughs> was yeah. was was Zidane's goal in the his volley? Was it? Did it have some some elements of of that in it? Did Zidane plagiarise Ronnie Wheeler? <laughs> sacrilege. I don't know, but sacrilege. let the word go out from here that yes, that's what we believe on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, England had to play Russia next, and well, it was it wasn't pretty really. It was yeah. kind of all over by this point, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean England were gone by this point. I think um, it's either I think it might be in half time of this game, or it might be it might have been after the the Netherlands game. There was a fight in the change room. I think I think Brian Robson chin Peter Shilton. It's, it's it's in Brian Robson's book. There was some big sort of argument in the inquest after the match. And it ended up with a captain punching the most experienced player in the face. It was back in a hotel, I think, basically. Oh, was it back in the hotel? Yeah, he said, he said um, Brian Robson said his back it. it shocked me because he'd never turned on me before. He went on and on, ta- taunting me about the Captain Marvel stuff saying and saying he was the number one. He went on and on. I kept my temper for about half, three quarters of an hour, which is quite a long time for Brian Robson, to be fair. Mm. He said, then he said I was a bottler and that was when I snapped. He was sitting at the bar, so I told him, get up and I'll show you who's a bottler. He wouldn't get up, but I was so angry, I punched him where he was sat. He then just, I love this vision though. He just sat there and went quiet. I was, I was fuming, but as soon as I went for him, I knew I shouldn't have. I bet you knew you shouldn't have when you gave him your best punch and he just sat there. That's the thing that makes me laugh about this. <laughs> Robson absolutely unleashes one a right hander on you. And you just sit there and go, quiet, don't fall off the stool, don't fight back. Just, oh shit, I've hit a very big man and I shouldn't have done sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, interesting point as well here is that when you look at Italian 90, which is only two years from here, um, there's very few that were in that first 11 that were anywhere near this team. Des Walker, Gaza, Platt, Paul Parker... I think Pierce had only just got a handful of caps at this point. Just shows how quickly teams can transition, doesn't it, really? Yeah, well, actually, this after this game, um, this is the tournament at which Bobby Robson gave up on Glenn Hoddle, basically. Right. Um, and just said, well, you know, he's a great player, but, you know, he doesn't do enough in midfield um, in terms of getting the ball back. And he said, I had to look to the future. And then the, so the first game after this tournament is when Paul Gascoigne makes his debut. Um, and then England decide to move on on without Hoddle. But, but uh, yeah, actually, Dave Watson uh, gets a gets a game here in the Good uh, Lord. final game. Was he at Everton uh, then? Yeah, he must he have, have been. He would have been, yeah. yeah. Wowee. So he came from Norwich when he was quite young. So Right. Yeah. And then Ireland played the Netherlands to finish it off. Um, 
Arnhem were eight minutes away from getting to the semis because it was Netherlands won one nil in the end. But uh, Vim Keefe put him out with quite a weird goal from memory. Yeah, so this is a uh, Ronald Coom. Uh, a corner goes out to Ronald Koeman, who try, tries to volley it, but he just hits it straight into the ground. Uh, it balloons up into the air, and then uh, Vim Keefe just glances a header. And it's, it's something about the spin on the ball. It's just, it's like, um, I don't know, you guys know cricket better than me. It's like an off break or whatever you call it. It just, you know, kind of. It's like something Shane Warren would do. It just hits the ground and then just spins violently back into the net. And, you know, Bonner's got no chance. It's a really, really lucky goal. Really, Bonner, really... Bonner has absolutely no luck against Dutch people called Vim trying to score against him, does he? <laughs> no, no, it's not. That was Vim Yonk in a. Ooh, what year? 94. Vim Yonk, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, so there you have it. So it finishes with the USSR on five, top in the group, Netherlands on four, Ireland on three, and England on a zero points. Uh, let's just say that the press didn't take it very well um, and went after Robson quite hard. We're not going to go into that too much detail. I suppose, looking back, were they right to go in quite hard? Because everything we said about expectation, that squad, that team. Well, even even withstanding, you know, all the things about, you know, the butcher wasn't there, he broke his leg, Lineker had hepatitis, other things that went against him. You know, they were very unlucky in the the Netherlands game when they hit the post twice but yeah, true. when you shake it all down it's the only time England have ever lost all three group games at a major tournament um, so you know it, it's it, it difficult to paint it as anything other than a bit of a disaster really when you when you go in as um, second favourites I mean there were some mitigating circumstances but I mean if that if that happened um, now I'm a, I think an England manager would almost certainly lose his job oh yeah straight, straight away no matter what the group was, however hard it was. I mean, Roy Hodgson in 2014, he lost to Italy in Uruguay and drew with Costa Rica, I think, wasn't it? Uh, but, main, uh, you know, retained his job. And that was foreseen at the time. was like, well, I can't, you know, people couldn't believe that, that he'd not been sacked. But I think in the, in the, well, certainly in the current climate, I think you'd be gone immediately. You'd be gone the next morning. Uh, I mean, I, I, I look at it and I wonder... I mean, it, England's best chance of winning a tournament was was Euro '96, but you know, it's it's El Tal, it's Terry May to the press and everything else. So that's painted as some kind of success. Instead, it was it was a failure. You know, it was a home tournament. We didn't even get to the final, and it's the side that won it, the German side that won it, were no great shakes. Um, so I think England's best chance of winning a, a, a tournament since '66 was was '96, and nobody's ever going to dissuade me from the from the fact that lucky or unlucky, and we all remember the the fantastic sort of 40 minutes England played against Holland. They were outplayed for a lot of that match, but they did score the four goals in the, in that time. Um, a lot of the t- time in that tournament, they were pretty ordinary. But when you look at that tournament there and you look at the sides that were in it, and if you think of, of Italy as being a, a, a young and inexperienced side, you look at, uh, you look at, at West Germany also having some some young players and and uh, and admittedly the the home side um, they they didn't and if England did outplay as they as they 
they did. They were unlucky against the Netherlands. That was a pretty good chance of winning winning a tournament there. Only eight sides in the finals. Um, they would, I don't think England would ever again play in, a, in an eight-side, uh, eight-team final tournament there. Um, it was a missed opportunity. It was definitely a, a missed opportunity. And you know, some people might say, well, you know, Euro 2004, was it Greece won, won that one? Um, but I, I think Robson did get a lot of stick about it. But I think when you look at the talent that was available uh, to him, um, I think that stick was justified, really. Yeah, and I think it's, it's worth our reflecting on Ireland, who also went out as well, in that they probably played better football here than they did in more successful campaigns in yeah. 1990 and 1994. It's almost like... Jack looked at the better football and went, well, this is not going to fucking do. So I'm going to just basically yeah. retreat back into something awful. And I suppose the results spoke for themselves on some level. Well, that's the, that's one of the shames about his era, really, is that, you know, it's synonymous with long ball football. And, you know, Packy won his big shoots <laughs> down the middle and that kind of thing. But, you know, they had Houghton, they had McGrath, they had Whelan. You know, they had Sheedy. Sheedy. They had some... They had John really Sheridan later. Lovely John pass Sheridan of the ball, yeah. really cultured you know, ball-playing football was there. They really did. We have an episode on Ireland under Jack Charlton, by the way, listeners, if you want to look back and find that, if you're listening to that in more detail, that's there as well with the, with the fantastic Paul Doyle who gets stuck into that one. Onward to the semi-finals now, uh, which sees USSR playing Italy and West Germany playing the Netherlands. We'll do the USSR versus Italy first. It was a 2-0 win for the USSR. It was fairly business-like, by a USSR team who I think this young Italian team had run its course by this point. Gary's point before, what a team it was, but it was probably just that little bit too soon. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, they were a bit, uh, I think the the Soviet Union were a bit too streetwise for them. I think uh, Italy looked at it probably as a development. Had they had another year to, to play together, some of those uh, Italian players, you, you have the feeling that they, they their class would have, would have shown through. But... Um, but yeah, the, the Soviet Union in, in their almost last hurrah get through to a final. And then the other semi-final was just a small matter of West Germany playing the Netherlands. Um, but, well, the sense of history is... I mean, we forever bang on about the war, don't we? Imagine being Dutch. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? We didn't have to... I don't know, I don't like banging on about the war. It was ages ago. None of us experienced it. But I think the Dutch have more of a ground to go, well, yeah, well, you weren't invaded, lads, were you? You didn't have to live among and, and build up all of this over the years. Of course, the West Germany team of 1988 have very little to do with the invading <laughs> Germans of 1940. Exactly. We know that. But in terms of the history and the whole cultural relevance of it, that is a huge thing. Uh, then there's also 1974, let us not forget, that great team that Gary's already mentioned and the uh, the post being hit and all of that and the fact that you know they were seen as a deserving team to win. And then, of course, West Germany then take the lead with a dodgy penalty. Yeah, I mean, it, this is almost too perfect a revenge for the Dutch, really. <laughs> yes, because, they uh, they, they, you know, they lost the 74 final 2-1. There was a penalty to either side in that game. And there's a penalty to either side in this game as well. So um, Mateus gets the penalty just after half time. Then Van Basten gets a, a bit of a dodgy one, it has to be said, um, which Koeman then scores uh, to bring the game level 
with 15 minutes left. And then the, the great sucker punch with a couple of minutes to go is just another stunning finish from Van Basten. Um, I think it's Jan Vouters who slides the ball through to him and it's just out of Van Basten's reach and he slides in to hook it past Ike Emo. It's a brilliant finish. It really is. And um, and yeah, and yeah, that was you know, West Germany. They didn't have the time to come back. And that was, yeah, revenge, you know, a dish best served stone cold. You know, they've been, that had been in the freezer for 14 years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, waiting to go. And like, the way that was celebrated, I mean, it was celebrated like they won a final, basically, um, back in the Netherlands. There's all these stories of people running out in the streets, uh, grabbing their bicycles and holding them up and pumping them in the air because all, <laughs> because all the bicycles had been confiscated um, during the, uh, the occupation of the Netherlands. Wow. Um, during the war um i think that at the end of the game i think was it ronald Koeman? he mimed when the, when the players swapped shirts he mimed wiping his ass with olaf turns um, yes that's exactly what he did yeah. shirt. and um, which is I've, quite the shithouse trick and yet I it approve. really is yeah <laughs> um and then i think uh after the game i, I remember hearing this from rude Hoy, even though there was a final i think three days or four days later uh all the players went out and got absolutely hammered in the nightclub you know, in the middle of a tournament. Imagine the emotional letting that comes with that victory, though. I think it, you've, I mean, you've referred to a lot of it there, but among the players, I mean, it must just... I mean, a lot of them were probably kids in 74, weren't they? But um, it's... Yeah, the emotional outpouring is, is unsurprising, I, I believe. It's a bit like when, yeah, when, it, when Alan Shearer scored with that shit header in a Euro, whatever year it was. Euro 2000, was it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the pulls of international football, isn't it? It's, you know, it's certainly now isn't, you know, often the highest standard of football you can see. I think it's, you know, it's been usurped by club football, but it does become this conduit for, you know, emotions and having things hung on it, you know, that don't really have anything to do with football. Mm. But, you know, the, kind of the, the, players, the players, I think, do become aware of that. And, you know, the, uh, well, inverted commas, responsibilities that come with that, you know, that they know they're kind of playing for, you know, things other than the immediate prize that's on offer. Yes, I think freighted with meaning is a, a kind of phrase that, that that comes to mind, and you know that can be that can be very negative, but it can also. What's the word I'm looking for here? Um, it, it it kind of it kind of does matter and doesn't matter because. Ultimately, sport doesn't matter, but for the, for those of us who, for whom it plays an enormous part in our lives, it, it does matter. And if if everything is is simply reduced to eleven men kicking a uh, or women uh, kicking a ball around, well, you know, so be it. You know, sort of a Rembrandt for Holland or a Casper David Friedrich for Germany is just a you know daubs of paint on a canvas. But actually, you know, it's it's a lot more than that, and. And it does it does matter. We're we're only sort of uh, around on on this planet for a short time before we shuffle off this mortal coil. And and when things matter, they 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 matter. So I, I, you know, I'm glad that the the Dutch looked back to definitely looked back to '74. And if they wanted to look back further than that, then then it's then it's up to them. And you know, I love the idea of you know holding the bicycles over your head. I love the idea that the the Dutch thought the job was done and went out and and did the usual thing in the in the nightclubs thinking that the final would be a, a, an afterthought but you know I'm an Everton fan so I've grown up on Everton Liverpool so I know what 
what this kind of thing is. And I'm not comparing the, the two histories, of course, but I am comparing the two emotions that you, you get when you uh, look across a, a rival, or perhaps a rival that's been more successful, and you and you turn one over on them. You mentioned the a fine. few more things on this. Go on, mate, yeah. Sorry, just a, a couple more things on this game, actually, is that it became the catalyst for four years of uh, very fractious meetings uh, between West Germany and the Netherlands and, and later Germany and the Netherlands. So in the following World Cup qualifying group, uh, they were both drawn against each other and had a couple of very testy games. Then you had Italia 90, of course. You had the you know the, the big clash between Voller and Rijkaard, uh, which ended with you know Rijkaard spitting on Voller and they, they, you know, they both got sent off. Uh, and then they played at Euro 92 as well, which is which is another game, you know, loaded with, you know, it, it was obviously about so much more than the actual game itself, you know, the rivalry that it built up over these four years. So for that, at the turn of the 90s, it did turn into one of international football's great rivalries, really. And uh, I just wanted to mention both the kits as well, because uh, they're two strikingly iconic kits. Mm. I think uh, I did an interview with a guy, Doug Burton, who runs classic football shirts. I don't know if you've seen the website. Yeah, I have, yeah. Um, yeah, and he, and he was telling me the three most valuable international shirts are the Denmark one from the 86 World Cup and the two shirts that are, that are on display here. The Dutch one, uh, the quite striking orange one they wear, was the only ace, worn with the, asymmet- this, with the asymmetric patterns in it sort of thing. The patterns, yeah. They, they only the ever geometric. wore it for this. Yeah, they wore it for this tournament. So they only ever wore it for five games and uh, never wore it again. But, uh, yeah, it was at a time when graphic design was starting to get its teeth into, you know, football kit manufacture. And uh, with some, well, when we got to the 90s, some very bad results, but, you know, uh, some very iconic ones here. Speaking of kits, you're going to the final now, which is pretty iconic as well. You've got the, you know, the, the white Adidas Soviet Union kit with just the CCCP emblazoned across it in red. And then you've got the Netherlands kit as well. Um I don't know what is so cool about such something from the Soviet bloc that like that because there was nothing very cool about the Soviet bloc really was there? Nothing very cool about what they did really. You know, it's a, well it's, they have they they had the, and indeed have the best national anthem by they do a have country the best mile national anthem. Yes, especially coming back again to the bit in Rocky Four when Drago's big uh, <laughs> mural goes up. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that on they go to the final, which is the Soviet University of the Netherlands. It's probably worthwhile just just running through because we've not done the Netherlands team yet. It's really worth running through what the team was for the final. Van Berkelen was in goal. Barry Van Aller, Frank Rijkaard, Ronald Koeman, Adri Van Tigelen, Gerald Vandenberg, Jan Wouters, Arnold Muren, Erwin Koeman, Ruud Hullet, and Marco Van Basten. And then our Soviet friends was Renat Dasayev, Anatoly Dem- Demyanenko, Sergei Elenikov, Vagis, Kidyatulin, Vasily Ratz, Hennady Litovchenko, Alexander Zavarov, Alexei Mikhailichenko, Sergei Gotsmanov, Ole Protasov, and of course Belenov. On the um, on the bench was um, it, just as a bit of an aside was Sergei Baltasha. I think he ended up at Dundee United and is the father of Elena Baltasha, the tennis player uh, who I think is now dead. Bless her. Uh, but yeah, bit of a trivia aside there. Yeah, he was at Ipswich, wasn't he, for a long time? Was he? Um, yeah. Yeah, so she ended up playing tennis for Great Britain, Elena Bantasha. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it hasn't lined up, listed as 4-4-2 here. I'm pretty sure that's, it's a bit, bit 
not quite that, I don't think, when you watch it. But anyway, sorry, Mike. Uh, well, yeah, a quick word about the Dutch team, actually. It's, that's such an iconic side. Um, it really is. Like, maybe one of the most iconic that's ever won this tournament. You've got uh, Rijkaard and Koeman playing centre-back. That's like, mm. you know, a, a hipster's nirvana, basically, isn't it? <laughs> um, I think the, the top three in the Ballon d'Or at the end of this year, where Marco van Basten was first, Hullet was second, and I think Rijkaard was third, and Ronald Koeman was fifth. Uh, but, yeah, so you've got all those kind of players. and then, But also, from a kind of English perspective, you know, you've got Arnold Muren in that team, who's 37 at this point. And had had the great career, you know, he played for United and Ipswich. Hans van Breukelen, who'd been Forest goalkeeper. I mean, you saw those two names in the side and you thought, blimey, are they, they still getting a game? Yeah, <laughs> you, know, awesome. for, you know, I thought they'd retired. But, uh, but um, yeah, fantastically iconic side. And, you know, they had, they had their moments of fortune in the tournament, uh, you know, and certainly to get to the final, um, the Netherlands. But they're, they're definitely one of the most memorable teams that's ever won it, I think. So. Yeah. And I think karma allows them a, some moments of fortune in a tournament when one thinks of mm. other tournaments. So. Oh, yeah. And of course, not a great game. I think the thing is because people just remember that volley, the issue that that must have been what the whole game was like. Should we talk about that volley while we're here? We've managed to... Well, we, we should talk about the first goal, though, because that was a, an extremely uh, photogenic goal. And, uh, and my recollection is that it, it wasn't a bad game either, um, but that Holland were always going to win because the USSR didn't win football tournaments. <laughs> and yeah, the first goal, Hullet goes up for the header, and he seems to get higher than the crossbar because he seems somehow it was the dreadlocks, I think, uh, that he was affecting at that time, made him look so tall. And he hammers this header, and the dreads almost go with the ball into the net. He heads it that hard. And again, I remember watching it and thinking, oh, they're going to win. They're going to win. Of course they're going to win. Uh, it was such an emphatic finish. Um, and it was emphatic both from the, the power of the header, but also in the statement that a, a black captain of a European team with dreadlocks has just hammered the ball into, you know, the whitest team you have ever seen in your life, who were these <laughs> mix of kind of Ukrainians and, and, and Russians playing for the USSR. And it did it did feel, you know, the first goal felt iconic, but of course it's lost now with the with the second, which I have a very specific memory of the second, but I'll let you get to that. Yeah, there's a beautiful violence to that header by Hull. It's just absolutely stunning though. And he's he's putting it past probably the best goalkeeper in Europe as well. Or certainly one that would be in the conversation anyway in Renat Desire. Yeah, absolutely. Um but yeah, fantastic header. Yeah, it has been overshadowed by what came later in the second half. It's worth saying as well, the Soviet Union missed a penalty in this game. I'm not sure. Oh, at what, course, it might, yeah. yeah, I think it might have been at 2-0 rather than 1-0. I'm not, not exactly sure on that. But um, but that yeah. Hullet goal was, we've mentioned things, we've had a feature way back of things we missed from you know old football. That is the perfect example of the thing I, I, I said people running onto massive big bullet headers basically and that one yeah. as you said seemed to be kind of like a turbo version of it because yeah. i think the occasion the kit the dreadlocks the player the way he just like almost like threw every bit of disappointment straight at the ball with his head basically and yeah. then it went you know 
And then we, of course, come to probably is yeah probably one of the most iconic goals in world football. Certainly the most iconic goal in European Championships, I would argue. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, I mean, it's well, in, in a in a major tournament final internationally. It's hard to think of one that that's anything like this quality. And in, in a lot of ways, it reminds me of um, you know Gordon Banks's great save from. Uh, Pele in the 1970 World mm. Cup. That I mean, that's a great save, but it's heightened by the fact, you know, it's England against Brazil. It's the teams that have won the last three World Cups. The cross comes in from uh, Jairzinho, I think. It's not any old chancer that heads the ball. It's Pele. And, you know, and then Gordon Banks tips it uh, up and over the bar. And this, this um, you know, Van Basten goal, it's, it's in the final. It effectively settles the final. It's by one of the greatest players in the world. It goes past one of the best goalkeepers in the world. And to even contemplate taking that volley on and projecting it at goal is one thing. To actually nail it, you know, in terms of technique and timing, it's just absolutely stunning. It's, I've, I've never seen a volleyed goal from an angle like that uh, before like that. And it's heightened by the circumstances, you know, it's, it's in the final and all of that kind of thing. But it's, yeah, it's, if I if I was ever minded to pick a top three or a top five goals, I would definitely have that in there. Yeah, I remember watching it, and one of the things that seldom gets talked about, or not talked about directly with the the goal, is that the the cross compass, whatever one wants to call it, was hanging in the air for an absolute eternity. Mm. The ball is this, describing this 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 shallow parabola for what seems the longest time. I remember sitting in the living room, watching it there and thinking it's going to Van Basten. So he's going to sort of knock it back inside, you know, who's, who's going to be running onto this. And then he volleys it sort of over and across the goalkeeper. And there, there are two times I can recall watching football on television where, where I literally jumped out of the seat like I'm in a kind of silent movie and I'm sort of um, doing a double take or something like that. The other one was was the uh, famous Michael Owen goal against Argentina when he ran through everybody and then put it in the top corner. But the, the one before that and the only other one was, was Van Basten's volley there. And I, I kind of jumped out of the seat. And at that time, Dasayev was doing a kind of pirouette like he'd... Uh, he was seeing sort of birds flying around in his head tweeting um, because he'd been so discombobulated by this, uh, by, as you say, the, the conception and execution. And you know, seldom, seldom can conception and execution come together so forcefully in a moment. There are times when, and you know, one obviously thinks of the other uh, great iconic um Dutch goal, which is uh, bird camps with the the three touches against is it Argentina? Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, but but all that time that ball is cu- coming over there, he's thinking, "I'm going to hit this. I'm going to hit this. I'm going to hit this." All so many ways to get it wrong, but that's the the conception of it. And then the execution comes in that in that millionth of a second or however long it is that the ball is is on the foot where the connection has to be absolutely perfect he has to hit the middle of the ball it has to be struck with perfect timing absolutely everything had to be perfect in that tiny moment 
and then the ball arcs and goes over the keeper sort of at about four times the velocity that had come across to Van Basten. And that's another beautiful thing about the ball, uh, about the goal, is this long, slow pass and then this explosion as it comes off mm. Van Basten's foot. And then something else which, which you know, maybe it's just me, but Van Basten runs away. You know, he's six foot two. He's, he's obviously a perfect physical specimen. And he looks like a kind of ballet dancer. He barely looks human as he's running away, celebrating something that he's done, which is barely human uh, uh, as well. And you look at these people, and, you know, I do this sometimes. I, I did it with the John McEnroe film, and, you know, you do it with Maradona, and we talked a lot about it on the Maradona uh, pod that we did, is in that moment, you, you don't really think they're the part of the same species as us. They're not really human. They're... they're They've been created in a in a different laboratory, and they have different synapses in their brains, and they have different muscles and different uh, skeletons and something. Because no human could do that, and yet he did. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's an extraordinary goal. It will probably be in my top top five. And you know what was the day to days um, thing was something like because facts times importance equals news and i think you know somewhere in in what rob mentioned or you mentioned if you take context times execution um then that is is a goal for the ages you weren't the only one jumping out your seat either gary so um <laughs> Ren- renus uh Michels, the manager of the team who's also you know the godfather of total football i think he's the manager in 74 and all that he, the camera cuts to him on the bench and he's just, he's come off the bench and he's holding his head in his hands. Like his brain can't take in what, <laughs> what he's just seen. It's almost like, you know, I've just seen football perfected. Yeah. And my, you know, my brain can't handle it kind of thing. Bobby so that's, Robson that's did another... something similar, didn't he? When um, Ronaldo scored that goal for Barcelona, he ran the kind of half a length of the pitch. Yeah. Bobby Robson kind it... of puts his hands on his head and then just like, as if like, I've, you know, I've been in this game for so long and I cannot believe I've just seen that. Yeah. It's basically what his face says, you know. Uh, well, yeah, in all my 50 years, I've never seen yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> indeed, yeah. And it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's just a wonderful goal. I mean, you, you mentioned Bergkamp's goal there. I mean, this is never a very popular opinion that I posit, but I really do not get the fuss with that goal for the life of me. Um, you know, the Argentina one. Yes, it's it's a great goal. It's a brilliant goal. It's one of the best goals in that World Cup. But uh, compared to something like this goal, I mean, I, I just don't think the two, that this is just amazing. I think the thing about the Burke, we'll finish on this because we're, we're going on here, but uh, the, I think it's, it's similar to that one because I think the, the disbelief comes from, I don't think anybody else would try to do that and then do it. I think that Van Basten's do it, what Van Basten attempted to do and then did is, as you know, quite a few levels above what Bergkamp did. But I think it's something like that. There's also the fact that Barry Davis went mental about it, which, yeah, is, which yeah, always yeah. makes you think, oh, well, this must be something special because Barry's well, losing all yeah, his shit. Well, Bergkamp had actually already done it that season. He'd done a very simple, oh, sorry, very similar goal against Leicester. I mean, all right, that's against Leicester. It's not Argentina yeah. in the World Cup. But, um, it was I in the last knock-ins as well, wasn't it? It was fairly late yeah, in the game. And it had been a brilliant game. Yeah. And and the fashionable thing to say about that is, oh, I don't know which touch was the best. I mean, it's obviously the first touch. Where he <laughs> yes. from yeah, because the second one, he kind of just yeah. knocks it into the ground, really. 
It does, anyway. yeah, it's quite a basic finish up. Yeah. But yeah, uh, I digress. Yeah, we'll, yeah we'll if I could just, yeah. I, I could just chip in. I think the the difference for me is with the with the bird camp one. He had a kind of one percent margin of error on the first touch, a, a kind of three percent on the second, and a five percent on yeah. the third, or something. Whereas the Van Basten goal had a zero percent margin for error with that one touch. Is it anything other than a perfect connection, and it, it's it's gone. Um, He's taking his and, lead off Ronnie Wheeling, Gary. That's all he was doing. Well, it depends. Yeah, and it it, 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 it it kind of you know you can you can take your pick between whether it's three touches with tiny margins for error or one touch with with yeah. zero margin for error. But you know it's as it's well, as broad as it's long. Well, the Van Basten goal is quite clearly in, in a different stratosphere. But yeah, it's just it's just um, yeah. Anyway, so moving on. I mean, the thing is about Van Basten. We'll finish on this really. Um, is that obviously he had to retire at 28, and oh, Rob Rob God, Smythe, yeah. our, our our friend and and you know probably the most talented of us lot, let's be honest, has a as a as <laughs> <laughs> you know he made a great he's done a quite a bit about Van Basten when he's written from time to time, and he he I think he one of his great lines he came out is that Van Basten died so that other players may live. You know that basically yes. he didn't die obviously, but he. He had to retire at 28 after having the shit kicked out of him in the toughest league in the world in the 80s, basically, and his ankles were gone. And Fabio Capello basically said, you know, he was the greatest player I've ever coached and that, I can't remember the exact quote, but, you know, that football is worse because he's gone. And there is something about, and Rob makes his point, and I think, well, you know, that people like Ronaldo and Messi owe him and others, but him in particular, I think a debt of gratitude. I think his career ending around Italian 90, the way football was changing, people just weren't, even in the 90s, it wasn't great, but it got a hell of a lot better. Yeah. I, yeah I, Rob, oh, sorry. Um, yeah. I mean, Rob's line is beautiful. I mean, I, it reminds me of, uh, I don't know who did it. You might know, Lee. I mean, you're more of a rugby fan than I am, but there's a, there was a quote about Johnny Wilkinson that, he donated his body to English rugby while he was still alive. And it's you know, quite, <laughs> quite similar with Van Basten. You know, he, he had to lose his Achilles tendons, basically, you know, in, in order for the game to become a safer place. And it's just a tragedy that such a brilliant player didn't get to see the years 28 to 32, you know, those fabled peak years that you have. Um, but, I mean, wh- what he did before that, that body of work, what he did in this tournament... You know, he is, uh, Gary mentioned before, you know, Platini taking over 84, Maradona did it in 86. This was very much, will be, and always will be remembered as Van Basten's tournament. And those are the first three football tournaments I saw. So I got rolled into thinking, well, every tournament I'll see, you know, <laughs> some great player will grab hold of it and do, you know, the amazing iconic thing that will be remembered forever. Yeah. I mean, um, just going back a little bit there, I'm very much uh, Mick McCarthy to Rob Smiles Van Basten when it comes to this, <laughs> this kind of thing. But uh, but I think and one of the we might we might do so it might take a bit of research. But I wouldn't I wouldn't mind having a having a, a, a Nessun Dormer on on Set Blatter actually because there's a lot more to Set Blatter than the the kind of uh, rather oily uh, finish to and his, cracking onto uh, women in bars to his late, career, but. Yeah. But but I I think I think I seem to remember, and I may be wrong in this, and you might be able to correct me. I'm sure Rob would as well. Is that I think uh, Blatter was a huge fan of Van Basten. He was like his his hero, and he thought he was just you know a a, a sublime footballer, which obviously he was. And I think that that 
there was an element of, of Blatter having his heart broken when uh, when Van Basten had to retire at 28. And I think Blatter was one of the the, the people who said kind of never again and um, started to, to push uh, greater protection for creative players. And, you know, that, that lovely line about, um, about that he died so that others may live. I think Blatter played a big part in, in that, perhaps behind the scenes. Um, but I, I, I definitely recall, recall that. And obviously football is a better game uh, for that. And we're, we're fortunate to have had the players that we've, that we've had. And, you know, it seems like a long time ago now, but at the start of this part, I was talking about the fact that Ronaldo can play on um, into his mid-30s or even perhaps beyond beyond that because of the uh, better diagnostics and rehabilitation of injuries, but also the pitches. But I think the rule changes also play a, a critical part in that and the application. Because the rules were always there. They just weren't applied by hmm. by referees. And, and you know, if the, if the price we had to pay for that was, was Van Basten, some may say that's too high. And, you know, obviously it's too high from his perspective. But the game was different after uh, Van Basten sort of limped out of it at the, at the tragically young age of 28. It's, it's worth to bring this to a close so actually just give yeah. the words to Rob who isn't here actually I'll read out what Rob's written um, if you'll allow me a few seconds on this Marco Van Basten died to save football not literally and not voluntarily but his premature retirement was the catalyst for law changes designed to promote skill and end the legitimised thuggery of the 70s and 80s the balance between skill and strength has now gone too far the other way and football has been emasculated but at least the world's best players no longer have to have their ankles kicked to smithereens Messi and Ronaldo owe him a debt of gratitude Van Basten played his last professional game at the age of 28 for Milan against Marseille in the Champions League final of 93. Marco was the greatest striker I ever coached, said Fabio Capello, the former Milan coach who broke down in tears when the San Siro played its respects to Van Basten. His early retirement was a mortal misfortune for him, for football and for Milan. He did so many great things in his career. He won the Ballon d'Or three times. He was part of the last team to retain the European Cup. That was Arrigo Sarki's revolutionary Milan. He was also the star of the Milan side who went unbeaten in 1991-92 Serie A. Yet all those enormous achievements pale into comparison to his astonishing volley against the USSR in Euro 88, which we talked about, for something that cannot be explained and might not even exist. They are almost striving for Godot. As, as such, it would seem a futile exercise, but it wasn't for Van Basten. His goal against the USSR was as near to perfection as damn it. And we will probably leave it there. Yeah. You're right about Rob being very good, Lee. Yeah, I tell you what. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so we move on to finally finish this episode for the last 10 minutes or so with our journeyman of the week, who is none other than Yari Olavi Lipmanen. Yari Olavi Littmanen, born in February 1971 in Lati, Finland, to parents who both played football to a very high standard. His dad played for Finland as well, and I think his mum was a leading light in pro in sort of the first attempt to get in decent women's football in Finland as well. Writing about Littmanen in 2009, Paul Simpson, the former 442 editor, went as far as to assert that his career has not been worthy of his talent, which I think is a really good summation of it, Gary. Yes, I think it is. Um, and that is, uh, I would suggest that that phrase is weighted towards the, the talent because this player was enormously talented. You know, he was, he's up there in the kind of Michael Laudrup uh, class, I think, at his best. 
Uh, he was an extraordinary player. He had a 360-degree vision, a superb technician. Um, he could run games from the, the middle of the pitch or slightly advanced of the middle of the pitch, but he scored a lot of goals as well. But it somehow it seemed to fizzle out. You know, you, you, you thought after his, his time at Ajax, because, you know, traditionally people who score 91 goals in 159 games for Ajax go on and, and win sort of European trophies at Milan or they go on to to um, lead teams in international uh, tournaments and so on. But somehow his, his, his career sort of dribbled away um, after that spell, um, Ajax. He, he he does the journeyman thing. He, yeah, eleven he plays... clubs he had in the end, didn't he? Which was yeah, which is surprising actually. The, the only club he played more than the twenty six matches he played for Liverpool, which always seems like a cameo of twenty six uh, matches, was the forty he played sort of very late in his career for Larty, um, who sound more like a kind of coffee concession, don't they, than a, than a Finnish team, uh, and that was his hometown. So maybe that's why he was there but you know in in your mind's eye at least in my mind's eye i've got him coming to liverpool at kind of 33 or 34 but he wasn't he was uh, he was only 30 and he should have been he should have played three or four seasons particularly a player of his his quality who didn't rely on explosive pace or anything and yet um you know he julie brought him there didn't really pick him and he was he was as surprised as, as anybody, I think, that Liverpool bought him and then sort of plunked him on the bench like he was a kind of naughty schoolboy instead of one of the, the leading players uh, over the, the, the previous kind of five years in European football. But at his, at his best, he was a sublime player to watch, a man who could find space in a telephone box, who could play a pass, he could play at nine, he could play at ten, he could play at a deeper role. He had absolutely everything. Um, but he just never quite seemed to match those those um those early games at uh, and those those glorious seasons at Ajax. I bloody love Yari Lippmann. I loved him in the eighties. I wasn't a yep. Liverpool fan or anything. I wasn't even an Ajax fan, but you had to love that kind of mid nineties Ajax team really. Um um I you know his legs were so bold bold he looked like he survived rickets. He had this sort of yep. dinner ladies mullet that looked like it still had rickets. He, yeah. had a, he had a sort of he had a, until he scored. He had a completely emotionless face. He almost looked like he wasn't that interested. Yeah, and, and his shirt almost his shirt looked always about three sizes too big for him. I don't think he was that smaller guy. He just I don't know whether I mean baggy shirts were a thing in the nineties, but somehow they looked more baggy on him. And he's kind of he could use both feet, like shoot off both feet, pass everything, everything, everything. He had absolutely everything. There is something about some of the best players. The reason why we love really skillful players like him is that. They still kind of look a bit like us. You know, that sounds like a stupid thing to say because they don't look very. I mean, people like Ronaldo look like they're from another planet and Van Basten. Yeah. Whereas yeah. Lippmann, and you think, oh, I went to school with somebody who looked like him, and he could dribble a bit as well. You know, you, there's something about them being on the same in the same sort of stratosphere as us somehow. I don't know how, but maybe. Yeah, I mean, he had a sort of tough introduction at Ajax because he effectively had to replace Dennis Bergkamp. <laughs> yes. The David Moyes gambit. You know, he eventually settled in there. I mean, that, that Ajax team, 95 to 96, the one that, that won the uh, Champions League and then reached the final the following year. I mean, that was such a stunning, t- such a throwback team as well. I mean, it's hard to imagine that something like that could happen to a club that size again. I mean, I know Ajax had a great run last season, 
but you know that that team's been immediately ripped apart by yes by um you know bigger clubs but um yeah he's just a wonderful player Whitman and he just seemed to fit perfectly into that kind of Ajax way of playing you know the demand on players to be you know technically good in a number of different positions and he's just uh it's just yeah, worth it's... a reminder that 95 European final, just the, the team Ajax had, Van der Zaar, Reisiger, Danny Blint, Rijkaard, De Boer, Frank De Boer, Clarence Seedorf, Finidi George, Edgar Davids, Ronald De Boer, Yari Lettmanen, Mark Overmars. Yo. That's not bad, is it? That is not bad at all. Their goalkeeper on the bench was called Fred Grimm as well, which I like. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a brilliant name. Also yeah. on the bench was Winston Bohada, who went on to swallow up Chelsea's money while doing nothing for four years, if you remember. Carney was on the bench, Clivert was on the bench, and Peter Van Vossen was on the bench. I mean, you'd take the bench, wouldn't you? I don't know about Fred Grimm much, but you'd take the bench at that time and put it into most yeah. other teams. Yeah, it's such a shame what the Bosman ruling did to that uh Yeah, that's that true, team, actually. Really. Yeah, I've never thought it of that really before, is. yeah. It's um, actually interesting about Whitman and when he came to Liverpool, which I think was it is in January 2001. I think yep. I'm right in saying that. So uh, he signed, I think his debut was against, it was in the League Cup. I think it was against Crystal Palace. But this is in 2001. And at this point, Robbie Fowers is having a bit of a bad time with uh, Gerard Houllier. They've fallen out quite badly. You know, he's not getting in the team. It looks like he's on his way out. And indeed, you know, Fowler was uh, out of the club uh, pretty soon after this. But there'd been a lot of news stories that week about uh, Fowler and Hulia's relationship and the fact Fowler was effectively trying to play for his career. So Yari Lippmann had made his debut in this game and he was up front with Fowler and a cross went into Lippmann, who was a yard out with a header to just tap a header into the goal. And he tried to head it back across goal to Robbie Fowler <laughs> so that Robbie Fowler could score and, you know, take some of the kind of weight of pressure off himself rather than score on his Liverpool debut, Whitman. You would do that for a teammate, you know, yeah. turn down the chance of scoring on your debut yourself. It was just incredible. Really. It says a lot about the man, wasn't it? I think he was kind of, mm. despite all of his talents, kind of without ego in, in lots of ways. He's the first I mean, fin- he's the first Finnish team sport player to have to be honoured with a statue in in Finland. Yeah. They probably got some downhill ski jumper or something like that yeah. with a statue for the thing. But yeah, I mean, well, you say um, I was going to say you say ego free, and I I kind of understand that. But there was, and what's hard with this word is that is that many of the great players have it, but there was almost a kind of diffidence I felt about Lippmann and that that. Either it came too easy, or he wasn't that that bothered. But it, it it kind of diffidence is one of those those words that can be awkward because it can be diffidence because you're not really trying, or it can be diffidence because you're arrogant, or it can be diffidence because you're so bloody good that that you you do it you do it anyway. But you don't often think of football as being diffident. You tend to think of it more as kind of golfers who just take an easy swing and knock it three hundred yards and then and then sort of sink a putt for a birdie. Or you think of tennis players with a a return of serve. But I think my memory of him was that he was often he often had that that kind of air of diffidence about him. And you know maybe English football wasn't a great fit for that because I don't think we do diffidence in English football. There's also the fact that when he went to Liverpool, he said, can I have the seven shirt? And he said, no, Vladimir Smites has already got it. Yeah. 
Yeah. I think I know I'd want to have my number seven shirt, but there you go. I suppose you've got to manage your dressing room one way or another. Well, well he scored a goal in the Champions League final, so I reckon he uh, he gets it, doesn't he? I'm, I'm looking here at Lippmann's record, and he scored his first goal for Finland on the 16th of May 1991, and he scored his last 19 years later. <laughs> On the 17th of November 2010, now they're hardly taxing opponents. The first was against Malta and the last against San Marino. But 19 and a half years between his first goal and his last goal. Now, I'm sure there's somebody playing for Saudi Arabia or whatever, who, who or Egypt, who, is, who has sort of 27 years between each goal. And Di Stefano probably had 19 years between goals scored for two different countries. But I'm just thinking how many how many in the kind of 21st century or within sort of our our kind of lifetime or within the span of Ness and Dorma have 19 and a half years between their first and their last international goals there, there can't be many and so you know if we think of, of Lippmann as a, a man who's what was the phrase that his 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 achievements don't match his talent um he was getting picked a lot so you know, maybe he wasn't quite as uh, as diffident and as uh, yeah. as wasteful of his talent as we as we might as we might imagine. One thing um, I'd say about Whitman and actually is that as we sit here now, Finland are I think one win away from securing qualification for Euro 2020, which will be Finland's first ever international tournament. So back in the 90s, you know, Whitman, and we, we only saw him in his club career. Finland didn't reach any major tournaments. So he carries an importance for his country yeah. as, you know, the leading player and by some distance from the rest of the national team players. It's, you know, George Weyer had that in the 90s as well yeah, with Liberia. Andrei Shevchenko had it to an extent with the Ukraine until they got to the World Cup. Even George Best, to a point, you know, had that with, with Northern Ireland in the 60s and 70s. So... I mean, yes, great club career, and that's what we remember them for. But I think within their countries, these players, they're, they're even more iconic than we can possibly know because, you know, they're the standard bearers for their countries, you know, in the, in the rest of Europe. You know, a region of Europe that in football terms doesn't get much of a mention, you know, isn't, isn't often acknowledged, is, you know, deliberately with seeding pools and everything kept in the lower, you know, rungs of... Uh, uh, UEFA qualifying groups and whatnot. Uh, are you trying to tell me that, that the land of a thousand lakes is a footballing backwater? <laughs> oh, dearie me. Oh, we're two hours into oh, it. You are, st- you are stinking up the place. Uh, so uh, <laughs> so uh, that's just, we'll finish on this now. We all love that it. Minute. Bombshell. <laughs> no, but I'm just going to list, I'll just list his clubs because he was, because I was generally surprised when he was suggested as a journeyman. I was like, he can't be one. But actually, 13 clubs in his career. Ray Pass in, in Finland, HJK, Mipar in Finland, Ajax, of course, 159 games with 91 goals, I've already mentioned. Then an injury hit season at Barcelona, Van Hal took him there. Liverpool for that one season, one of the bit seasons, I think. Um, Ajax, back to Ajax for one season. Larty back in Finland, Hansa Rostock, Malmo, Fulham, where he didn't play a game. In 2008, Larty again finishes at HJK, 18 games, one goal. 137 appearances for Finland and 32 goals between 1989 and 2010. Some player. I think if you've got yeah Barcelona, Liverpool and Ajax on your uh, resume, <laughs> you know, you know, you're not doing too badly as a, a footballer. 
And he's, you know, he's, he's won the Champions League. He's scored in a final. Fantastic. Interestingly, that 95 final, it, it, it was 1-0 winning. It was Cliver who actually replaced him as a sub who scored that winning goal in 95. Yeah, 17 years old, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Handy sub, Patrick Cliver, though, isn't it? <laughs> that entire squad, man. <laughs> Unbelievable. Right. Didn't, didn't Lineker make a film called Dreaming of Ajax about that side? Uh, it was a, It was one of those quite early kind of documentaries that the BBC have done from time to time. But I think it was one of the first ones where you got a, a kind of ex-footballer pundit presenter uh, leading a documentary. And it was it was really good. It went into the, the kind of background and how Ajax, you know, um, gave the, you know, how all the teams played in the same formations. And all of that was, was quite new at the time. And I, I, I think certainly Clivert uh, appeared in it. I just wonder if, if Lippmann was, was in that as well. It was, uh, it, was, it was definitely called Dreaming of Ajax, and I hope it was about that side. But I'll try and dig it out and see if it's on YouTube because it was a, it was a damn good programme. Yeah, I remember seeing that. Um, I can't remember if Whitman was on it, but I, the one scene I remember from it is one of the Ajax scouts shows uh, Winneker his, his uh, database of, uh, you know, their kind of scouting network. And it's all over Europe and they're looking on it and it's, you know, it's got people like, you know, Robbie Fowler on it. And, uh, and you just think, has any English club got anything anywhere near as sophisticated as this? You know, do they well, do English clubs, you know, know who the best young players are? Well, they've in, got a bloke called Barry who watches a few yeah. games. That's what they, that's what they're about <laughs> at the time. Yeah. Right. Thank you very much. Wow. That was an epic, but I hope that you all enjoyed it. <laughs> how many of however many of you are left at this stage, but I think it was, uh, we promised a deep dive and we do say now that cause we're up, we're doing probably one episode a month really is the main episode or one every three weeks or so it will be to make up for that quite an in-depth and long one. So that's where we're at now. Thank you very much for your company. Thank you for everybody who's contributing to us as patrons and thank you all for sticking with us to the end. Take care. Tara.